Hey, hey, howdy ho, everybody. How is everybody doing? It's uh, the Friday night edition, as I'm sure you're aware, limited edition, special edition of the Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, and I hope everybody's doing well, and thanks for the patience. Uh, it's good to be here. Kind of. No, it's real good to be here, actually. So, um, so uh, yeah, here we are. World's still going around, apparently. Um I was trying to think of some cool uh, rhyme to go with, hey, hey, ho, ho, something, something's got to go. But I just realized that uh, there's just, a, I don't know, chanting is just a little silly for me. Did you guys see that video of that legislator, le <laughs> legislatress, legislatrix, um, who, uh, is there, I, I, I don't remember what, what, a legislative body it's in but she's basically an elected official who got up to the um, had had three minutes and she just chanted you know trans people are here to stay okay great as well um yeah trans people are fine was that what it yeah um because that is there's nothing really that'll um convince an audience better than just shouting the same, you know, couple of words into their ear as loud as, and as annoyingly as possible. I've always actually been a little bit intrigued by this. Um, hey, there you go. User, uh, user, you says, hey, hey, ho, ho, welcome to the latest show. That's, that's really quite good. Um, but I, I've always just found that the people who do the chanting thing is, is Nebraska. Thank you. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just strikes me as so infantile. And, and especially when you see it in, in like these college campuses now where you just ask them a direct question or you, you, you just, well, what's your view on this? And then they just chant louder. It's just, a, it's just you know, it's funny. I was talking about, I know this is our, a political show, so this is kind of a political point, but, ooh, that's well done, Matt Mittens, who says that the heckler's veto is currency. I've never heard it called the heckler's veto before. I've never heard that term before. It's an awesome term. And secondly, it is currency. Um, Tim Morris, uh, USA, says, is chanting violence? Yes. Yes. When, when, when people chant and I'm trying to speak, it's, it is literally physical violence. It's literally genocide against me. And it's literally murder. They're literally killing me. Literally. Um, so, you know, it's just a, 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 a real, everything about, about this movement is just, it's just so, it's just so infantile. I think we've talked about this before. Anybody who, who actually says that, you know, really believes it, yes, language is violence. That you say something that I don't like, it's actual, honest, literally, it's literally violence. I, I just realized those are people who've never experienced violence, because if they've ever been a victim of actual violence, then they'll, they'll know there's actually quite a difference. Um, I'm sure it hurts them more than it hurts me, but that's because they didn't have a chance to get this thing sorted out when they were six, when they probably should have. Um, but that aspect of it has always just struck me as really, it's just sad, really. Hey, look at that. There's a $10 super chat from Cody Fett. Uh, quick question while I'm still awake, in reference to your time zone or, or to the length of the show. Uh, because we're just getting started. If you, if, you, if you can hang on, man, for another, oh, I don't know, two, three hours, somewhere around an hour 20, you'll, you'll, you'll kind of you'll break through the wall. 
Uh, are you going to talk about the recent ground and air assaults into Russia proper tonight? I did not know about the recent ground and air assaults. Um, so I guess I will. I had not heard uh, about that. Um, if you're talking about Russia proper, meaning neither the um, eastern provinces of, of Ukraine or the Crimea, if you're talking about territory that is neither one of those two, in other words, territory that uh, has never been disputed, then uh, I think that's a um, I think it's a big mistake. Um, I really think it's a gigantic mistake. Uh, in terms of what do you say, uh, ground and airstrikes? Well, I'll tell you. Well, you make a case for an airstrike, right? If the, if if the, uh, the, 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 the this is a war for survival for Ukraine, and if you're fighting a war like that, it reminds me so much of the situation in Vietnam, where it's like, yeah, we we, we know exactly where all of the uh, enemy SAM sites are, and we know where their supply routes are, and we know where their where the, all of this stuff is. We're just we've just said we can't hit it. We're not allowed to hit it. We're just going to get our guys killed on the ground because we're not willing to strike a target in Cambodia or Laos or wherever else the North Vietnamese have put the stuff. So um, Dave Olson says SpaceX blasting off tonight at twelve twenty-five Eastern. You know what I say to that, Dave? I say, oh, uh, just one. Um, so. If any kind of a, a, and even if you're talking about a like a commando strike or something like that against a, a supply depot or something, that's also probably legitimate. But it, I think it's a catastrophic mistake for them to roll actual forces into Russia proper, just because it 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 validates Putin's fig leaf for this whole thing. So uh, that's about all I have to say about it. I haven't uh, gotten more any any more information on it than that, but. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've said this from the beginning of the invasion, um, 11.25 tonight, I'm sorry, uh, Eastern, since the, since the invasion began, Russian soldiers fight differently uh, for the Rodina than they do in foreign territory. He had to lie to his troops to send them to Ukraine. He told them they're going for exercises in Crimea. And his frontline troops... Back a year ago, over a year ago, we're like, oh, we're where? We're, we're doing what now? Never heard of such a thing ever. I don't think Xerxes did that. But if it turns out that um, if it turns out that uh, they're talking about moving, you know, armored columns or stuff, I think that's an enormous mistake, uh, catastrophic mistake, personally, because it's all about uh, morale and and you know and and. And this is actually relatively small when you think about it compared to the Cold War. Because in the Cold War, the entire reason that the Cold War didn't happen, that these weapons weren't used, was because of the, because of the moral considerations, because of the stigma of going first. Whoever, whoever let that nuclear genie out of the bottle uh, was just, you know, that was just such a monstrous thing to do, and this is why I've not been one of those people who's terribly worried about Putin using nuclear weapons, because because I studied the Cold War so intently, and and individual Russian officers in two different cases 
did not use nuclear weapons while they were convinced they were under direct attack by U.S. forces. Both those times turned out to be mistakes, but this a, that's a big uh, that's a big leap. Um, and so, I um, I don't think you should give them any. I don't think you should give Vladimir Putin anything to um, to go with. Bart's treasure said, but did Putin study the Cold War? He surely did. He studied the Cold War. My understanding of his study of the Cold War, my, this is my understanding if I had to guess. I don't, I don't know the inside of the man's mind, but I know a bit about his background, and I know a lot about his, um, his uh, former government for a Westerner. Um, I, I'm convinced that Putin looks back on the Cold War and believes that the Soviet Union could have won it if they hadn't been uh, – if Gorbachev hadn't just given it away. Uh, I've heard from my wife, uh, who grew up with this situation, she was a you know, young young girl in the last days of the Soviet Union, and has said that uh, that Putin, the only people that Putin genuinely really just has a visceral hatred for are Gorbachev and uh, I think to some degree Khrushchev because they he felt like they just gave it away. Um, so uh, I suspect uh, Vladimir Putin thinks if they hadn't just given it away. I think Vladimir Putin is suffering from exactly the same thing that the Germans were suffering from after the First World War and to some degree that the Confederates were suffering from. Namely, we surrendered, but we weren't beaten. I really think that's what Putin looks at with the Cold War. Let me just grab these uh, 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 super chats real fast, uh, and then I'll come back to that. Uh, Cody Fedekin, uh Russian volunteer units in the Ukrainian army crossed over the border in a raid and took several towns near Bel Belgorod. The Russian government two days later claimed that this was all part of Putin's plan. Yeah. They may know the psychology of, of it better than I do. Maybe maybe that's uh, maybe that's it. And 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 Infidel forty two I said it wasn't it wasn't uh it wasn't um Khrushchev. He, Putin despised uh, Gorbachev and and Yeltsin. Um, and then uh, Woods Precision Arms says we are advising Ukraine to do exactly. I mean exactly what Putin has been wanting. Now it's gloves off. We haven't seen anything yet. I think it's a gigantic, enormous, ridiculously stupid mistake. And um, and I just. I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, yeah, this may be because of, uh, I had heard, I, I haven't been following it very closely lately, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but um, I had heard that the Russians had finally captured Bakhmut after 100,000 killed or something. And it's possible that uh, the Ukrainians wanted to show them, you know, okay, well, two can play at that game. I just, uh, I just don't know. Uh, uh, Bart's treasure said that Trump said he could stop that war in 24 hours, possibly. Um, <laughs> just real fast to get it out of the way. Uh, Sacred Order of Nightly Valor says, "Is that a universal translator on the Gorn Captain's belt, or is he just happy to see us?" I'm going to go with the um, universal translator on that one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to me. To me, the ultimate 
justification of a Ukrainian long-term win would be you expel Russian forces from the borders, including Donbass and those eastern regions, and you stop the tanks 100 yards short of the Russian border. You just stop them. And that would be a pretty clear signal, like, this whole thing was about defending our territory, and um, and that's all we want to do. Uh, but in any event, um, you know, a, a raid, I mean, I don't know what a raid is. I mean, I know what a raid is. I don't know how big the raid was. A, a, a raid is different than a, than a, a you know, an armored column or a, or a regiment of um, mechanized infantry or anything like that. So, I don't know. Um, I don't think, I, I don't think they, look, it's not my, I'm not, I'm not in any position to make moral judgments on these things. I just have political opinions about them. Uh, it seems to me that if I had the means to strike enemy supply depots that were within, you know, two, three hundred miles of, or less, really, of the front, I wouldn't mind crossing over the border with a couple of missile strikes or something, or even airstrikes. But ground troops are something else, uh, and and those. If I was if I was running the Ukrainian public relations campaign, I would basically say, okay, we're going to hit these military outposts, we're going to hit these depots, we're going to hit these assembly centers if, if they're within range of HIMARS or whatever the case may be, and we may launch commando raids on a navy base or something along those lines, some fuel. Supply or something along that line, but I would never, uh, I would never make it look like we're we're going to go into Russia as a military um, you know as 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 a sort of a well as a, as a kind of a, a, a counterattack. And again, just for the sake of moral clarity some people disagree with me on this to more when i say morally it's like it is a counter attack i don't think it's smart but it's a counter attack it's not like he started it so there you go and eric blake says in mother russia missile strike you it's getting to be an old joke i love it but boy the days of yakov smirnov being the only representative of of russia in this country those days are long gone i think i hear more russian in los angeles than i do uh spanish now i I'm willing to admit that I may have married into some of that, but a lot of Russians everywhere. Um, oh, now that's interesting. That's very interesting. See, now this is this is really this is a this is clever, and and it I don't know if it really makes a huge difference, but it's interesting. Cody MacArthur Fett, who's over here on the he's he's everywhere apparently. He's he's like the Holy Spirit. No, I didn't mean to be that irreverent, said that um, it's worth noting that the Raiders were all Russian volunteers. Now, see, now, when, when you hear that, that is, that's a kind of a, of a, that's a much more nuanced public relations move. And I have some fundamental basic knowledge of military strategy, but the thing I'm, I'm actually good at is storytelling and messaging. And so that um, that aspect of it, using Russian volunteers, is is clever 
because what what that signal is trying to send is see now that really does that really does really tweak the thing from a just from a purely PR and and propaganda you know moral point of view what he's I think what that would be saying is look these Russian uh, volunteers who you sent to Ukraine are willing to uh, uh, launch this raid back into Russia because the Putin government doesn't represent the Russian people. The Putin government's just done nothing but kill 150,000 of their of their their kids and and their best troops and their best airplanes and their best tanks. He just did it because he felt like it and um, and and we're basically kind of fighting back. Um, I want to go back to uh, to the thing I said earlier about. Um, about I think that Putin suffers from that same kind of syndrome that the that the um, Germans after World War One and the Confederacy, among two examples or many 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 others, uh, labored under that illusion they labored under, and that is that we were we we didn't lose the war on the battlefield; we were defeated by um, by politicians uh, back home. Now. People have also applied that argument to the uh, Vietnam War, and in the case of the Vietnam War, they're 100% correct. When the when the military activities ended there, the North Vietnamese were behind the border where they'd started from. Their invasion of the South had been militarily turned back, and when and when the U.S. forces left, that was the win because that was the objective. And then two years later, the politicians actually did sell them out. But we're not. But that's not what I'm talking about here. After World War One, Germany, the German, significant percent of the German population, in fact, probably most of them, didn't feel like they were beaten. And so to assuage their pride, they told themselves the, in Germany, uh, after the First World War, came the, the, the legend of the, um, of the uh, you know, the stab in the back. That the that the soldiers and the troops and the people were behind the war and they were going to go ahead and dawn to victory and 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 a couple of these rascally communist Jewish politicians sold them out and and they lived under that illusion for another twenty something years until finally became clear to them they actually were defeated. Uh, the Confederacy has this um, lost cause kind of a myth to it, the sense that we outfought the Union, that they only beat us through uh, force of arms and, you know, and numbers, and 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 we surrendered armies in the field that had whipped the, the Union many, many times, you know, and it, it's just, it's just, it's the reaction of people to, um, to massage their own pride and egos, which is what got them into trouble in the first place. It's what got them to launch these these uh, actions. And it, it it's a way to salvage their pride. It's like, well, we didn't really lose, you know. Blah, blah, blah. Um, now, the thing that's interesting is to contrast that with what happened in 1945, because after World War One in 1918, in Versailles Treaty in 1919, Germany was bitter for 20 years, convinced they didn't lose, and the victorious allies had put unbelievable uh, shackles on Germany in terms of reparations and guilt for the war thing. And they, you know, the French were in were in uh, in Western Germany for 20 years, taking their coal and all the rest of it, just making them more and more angry. 
So after World War One, you had this worst possible case scenario, which is you you force their armies off the field, but the people are not only still militant, they're now more angry than they were before, more militant than they were before. And you're rubbing salt in their wounds. And then you contrast that with the um, with the Allied victories in Germany, but most especially in Japan. I, I, I just read some more details about those uh, those final days or the days immediately after World War II in Japan. And it is not only astonishing and unparalleled, it, 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 it really beggars belief, honestly. When World War II was over, there was no question that Germany had lost that war. The German people had no question about it. They knew they'd lost that war. Their entire, their entire infrastructure was bombed out. Not only forget about the combat losses, their cities were just essentially just skeleton structures. There's no denying that they lost in World War II in a way that they could deny that they'd lost in World War One, and same with Japan. Um, and in both cases, I think mostly due to America. I really think America was the driver of this in World War II in, in Europe as well, was the sense of, okay, they've surrendered now. Now that they've surrendered, then let's just... What we did in Japan, I mean, all of these, all of these transports and all of these landing craft that we had begun to assemble and, and had largely assembled for the invasion of Japan, once they surrendered, let's say it was August 12th or 13th, once they, once Hirohito had, let me just back up on this. The first thing I ever did that, that got me any attention, and I'm very proud of it, maybe the best thing I've ever done, although I think Apollo 11 trumps it, um, was the uh, the true story of the atomic bombs. So, so people say, oh, the atomic bombs didn't make any difference. So they absolutely made a difference because among the many things that they did was they gave Hirohito an excuse to surrender. If that's not clear to you, then it's because you don't have a, enough of a, of a background on, um, on Japanese culture. They were so filled with martial pride and their entire shame-based society was so predicated on it's better to die gloriously than to surrender that they would have died they would have fought to nearly the last man they would have been 10 million japanese on the beaches with bamboo spears and we would have just plain annihilated them and we would have lost a half a million maybe a million american killed certainly a million casualties lady hawk said hirohito needed a way to save face yes that's basically precisely correct and if you don't understand how face works and then then it's impossible to to talk to people who's oh well they were they were ready to surrender they were not ready to surrender they were they were trying to surrender they weren't trying to surrender and the reason we know that they weren't trying to surrender was because they didn't surrender we told them and dropped leaflets all over that place. So John said, we should have given them warning. We gave them plenty of warning, dropped dropped hundreds of thousands of leaflets saying, if you don't stop this, we're going to lose one. It listed the cities that were potential targets. You need to stay out of those areas. We're not at war with the Japanese people. We're at war with their illegal government. And then, boom, Hiroshima. And the reason you can tell that they didn't, that they weren't ready to surrender 
was because after we dropped an atomic bomb on them, they didn't surrender. And after we dropped a second atomic bomb on them, they still didn't surrender for six days. There were officers, there were imperialist Japanese militists who, who, who were trying to intercept, violently intercept, little shootout happened, because Hirohito had recorded the surrender statement in the Imperial Palace, and, and as they're driving this audio tape to the radio station to transmit, they, they damn near intercepted this thing, these Japanese you know, bitter enders. They just weren't going down, but it gave Hirohito cover. It gave him a way to save face. It gave him a way to essentially say, look, we weren't so much defeated because of our, our lack of courage or because of this or that or whatever the case may be. We were defeated because these Americans came up with this brand new weapon out of the sky and um, and no one can resist this. No one. So therefore, we're going to... Um, by the way, he doesn't say uh, surrender. He says, therefore, we've decided to agree to the terms uh, imposed by the Potsdam Declaration from the Potsdam Conference in, in Germany uh, after the European war was over and before Japan surrendered. He, he never said we're going to surrender. He said we will abide by the agreements of the Potsdam or the conditions of the Potsdam Declaration. Um, now, Sacred Order of the Knightly Valor, who's been making many, many, many uh, super chats here and, and doing it in yen, for which I'm very grateful, says, I live in Japan and I've heard from old people that they were amazed at the kindness of the occupiers. Uh, they thought we would slay them by the millions. Yes. So this is, the, this is, why, this, this is why that moment is, is so unique in history. It's like, it, this is how it's done. It's just how it's done. If you're in a fight for survival now, then the only way to to have anything lasting after that is to beat people so soundly that they are ready to surrender unconditionally, which means they, they're expected to be made into slaves or they're expecting to be... Nobody knows what, what they're going to get, right? And after they've made that admission, especially with pride and shame cultures like Japan and Germany to some degree, after that... And only after that, once they are on their knees, then if you help them to their feet, they're yours forever. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Um, the uh, Merjadark, wait, did I miss something? Isn't Bill now arguing against his previous position that the nukes defeated Japan and now he's saying they didn't? No, I'm saying they did, Mersha. Are you listening to what I'm saying? Of course they did. They, were, they defeated Japan because they gave Japan the reason to surrender. They, they, the firebomb damage that had been done to all of these other cities was far greater than the damage that was done in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The, the firebombing of Tokyo was probably more fatalities than, or, or nearly than both of them combined. What I'm saying is the, the bombs were so overwhelming that they gave Hirohito a reason to surrender. They, that was, if, if he hadn't had that reason, they would have had people on the on the beaches with spears, millions of them, millions of them. And there is nothing else that would have done that. So there was that. And then there was also a very controversial decision at the time, which was, do we leave the emperor on the throne? And a lot of people, a lot of people said, no, he's the one who started this. He's the one who's behind it. You know, was, Tojo was a militarist, but Hirohito went along and Hirohito went uh, you know, basically thought, oh, here's a chance to expand our empire, all this, blah, blah, blah. But the, but the Japanese had demanded in all of their conditional surrender terms, they basically said, 
well, you know, we'll talk about it, but we but we must maintain our emperor. And the, the military said, we must maintain our emperor. We cannot have a foreign occupation. Uh, foreign occupation will not override laws of Japan. Basically just saying, well, well, you know, let's just say the whole thing never happened. And America agreed to the emperor part with the proviso that it made that it was made clear that the emperor was in fact not the supreme law of the land the supreme law of the land was the new emperor and that emperor's name was douglas macarthur but they gave them they gave them enough of their pride back so that they could function and once they were defeated the U.S. forces in, in Japan, the Japanese couldn't believe how kind the Americans were, and the Americans couldn't believe how, how polite and subservient and willing, willing, actually willing, the Japanese were. Like, like that. These are people who were, who were blowing themselves up in caves by hanging on to grenades, who, people who, whose, whose bravery and, and fanaticism, courage, the raw courage of Japanese troops, unbelievable. And they were... And there was no reason to think and every reason to believe that this was going to get much, much, much worse. And then, boom. Now, I think what this is, is I think this is a, 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 I think this is a hardwired response. Um, I really do. I think it's, a, I think it's a, a hardwired response. And what I mean by that is when there are two wolves fighting or any other animals with teeth or really any other animals that are staging dominance uh, displays amongst themselves for whatever reason if two wolves are going at it and they're ready to tear themselves to pieces and they will tell themselves to pieces when one wolf finally surrenders and bears his neck it deactivates the other wolf it's not like the other wolf has to calm down it's not like the other wolf is just and you know has to walk it off and count to 100 show me that you give up say uncle remember that when you were a kid say uncle once you said uncle, that's it. Fight's over. Say uncle. You twist your arm or something. All right, uncle. It's over. Done. And and that's what happened to the Japanese psyche. And what I, I don't know if anybody's written learned papers about this. I'm sure there must have been many of them. But what remained in the Japanese consciousness showed up 15 years after after that. When um, when they made a, a low-budget movie about this monster from the sea that was the product of nuclear power, this monster from the sea that would just come out of the ocean and stomp the cities to the ground, Godzilla is America in that sense. It's their, it's their America... It's their, it's their, it's like their collective subconscious of how to deal with this catastrophe, because Godzilla is not somebody you can turn back with a samurai charge, with a with a bonsai charge. Godzilla is overwhelmingly powerful creature, and you can't, you can't win against an overwhelmingly powerful creature. Godzilla smashed Japan because Godzilla was stronger and impervious to Japanese bravery. To Japanese bravery. And a couple people have pointed out here, um, uh, Eric Blake and Tim Morris uh, both said, and let's not forget that Godzilla has atomic breath. <sighs> 
he can breathe on you and just kill everything. That monster coming out of the ocean that 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 that's released as a result of a nuclear um, I guess it's the backstory of Godzilla, right? There's some sort of nuclear test that wakes him up. Um, and it's it's an expression of, of how, if you really want to understand how the Japanese felt about America at the end of the world, uh, at the end of the war, then all you have to do is look at Godzilla at the movie, right? It's this alien creature that comes out of nowhere and just lays waste to everything. And I, for the life of me, do not remember how they defeated it, but I, I don't, somebody's going to have to help me out with this, but they, they didn't kill Godzilla at the end, right? Didn't they just kind of convince him to go back into the ocean? Isn't that how that ended? I actually kind of need the answer to that. Um, because I, I recall that's what that was uh, about. And that's an interesting point that Tim Morris makes. He said, Godzilla's a uniquely Japanese phenomena. No such thing would have come from American culture. We could never accept a monster that we could not defeat. That's not us. I kind of agree with you. However, um, however, Tim, if we ever were defeated, then we'd start seeing America Godzilla movies. They, they felt the same way about them, too. Marisha said they sang to him. Is that right? That sounds correct, right? Is that right? Because that's perfect. Uh, some people said they invented a new super weapon. I kind of think singing to them, the original one. Um, and as Airtechy points out, that as this series went on, because they made a bunch of them, he goes from he goes from being this un, un incomprehensible incomprehensible cataclysm to becoming an ally. He's the good monster. He's the monster that protects Japan from other monsters, worse monsters, and that would be communism, China, and all the other things that the Japanese had to worry about. Um, so, oh wow, Kaladin Society, well, that's a piece of poetry, with a purposeful grimace and a terrible sound, he pulls the spitting high-tension wires down. Yes, indeed. They sing him to sleep. People saying they sing him to sleep. People say they kill him at the end. Uh, I'm going to go with they sing him to sleep um, because that's that's because it was mentioned by Castle Bravo. Yes, and on, uh, the story is that the explosion will come up. Okay, so there we go. So we do an underwater explosion at Castle Bravo. We do the nuclear test out there. And uh, where was the first one? I don't think it was a bikini. Might have been Quadrilene. Um And and so I mean, just think about this. If the if I'm gonna go with the sang him to sleep thing. The twins sing to Mothra. Okay, it's the same kind of thing. You can transfer it to Mothra if you want to. They sing him to sleep. Think, think about that. They think about how how um unbelievably insightful that is into the Japanese mindset, right? We cannot stop these monsters. We can't. There's no stopping them. We shoot them with tanks and the bullets, the, the, the tank rounds bounce off them. We go at them with jets and the jets just get crushed. But we sing him to sleep means we appeal to his gentle 
nature or or you know music hath powers that doth soothe the savage breast we're going to sing him to sleep we're going to instead of fighting him we're going to um placate him not not in the same way we're not going to um what's the word i'm looking for um oh come on come on bill we're not going to pacify him. We're going to placate him. Um, in the original 1954 classic film, Godzilla was defeated by the oxygen destroyer, a device discovered able to break down the oxygen in the water, which caused him to disintegrate into nothing. Okay. Well, then, let's just look at the at the cultural phenomenon rather than the movie. Because I suspect that they realized that after they made the movie that this thing doesn't they don't. They, the Japanese people don't want Godzilla to go away. It's just too good a story. It's too important to them. So, okay. So they dissolve all the oxygen in the water, and then apparently it gets undissolved, and Godzilla comes back for I don't know how many sequels they made, including the ones that we made as well. Um, and uh, and so we're going to sing it to sleep, and that's exactly what the Japanese did. They they when the Americans came ashore, they were expecting. Bonsai charges from the, they were expecting all of the houses to be booby trapped the way that they'd booby trapped every piece of territory we'd taken over, um, you know, during the war. They, they they expected mass suicides like they saw in Okinawa and Saipan, uh, all of this stuff, and then these Americans stepping off on, on the first Americans stepping off to uh, on onto those onto that Japanese soil. You got to think, man, it's me and 12 guys here in this advanced platoon or, or, or a company or whatever, and there's 30 million of them, and I saw what they did just two weeks ago or a month ago to my buddies, and I don't feel particularly safe here, but that's that's not what they found. They found that they were... They were the, the Japanese greeted them the way that a person who runs an excellent hotel would greet somebody... And and with that same kind of dignity too, you know that there's a dignity about. There are people who who are in the service business who, who who can. Basically, function in in a service capacity, but still with so much dignity. Hotel business is like that. My dad was a hotel manager, and yeah, like Basil Fawlty, big booty, big booty. Exactly like Basil Fawlty. No, there, there is a you, you cannot humiliate a professional servant because a professional servant doesn't consider his job to be humiliating. Considers his job to be extraordinarily uh, important and dignified. You can't you can't shame a, a British butler from you know Victorian or Edwardian period. Couldn't shame them. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They were very proud of it. So anyway, I just I just think that's very interesting, and if you if you want to extrapolate that a little bit, if that's the Japanese method of dealing with this trauma, to say the least, the least, then what does America do? What what not what would we do if we were facing a kind of enemy? What what do we do? And what have we done? What what are the what are the cultural 
symptoms of our underlying national trauma. And to me, the only thing I see that's kind of universally out there, well, first of all, superheroes. You're a superpower, you have superheroes. And the superheroes, this is a completely American invention. There's no, no other country's ever come up with, well, let me immediately retract that. Like immediately. So we have Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Batman, and the Greeks had, you know, Zeus, Apollo, and then the demigods, Hercules, Perseus, those guys. So our culture came up with their own version of demigods, and these were, these were the Marvel and DC superheroes. And those movies expressed, especially in the early days, what America was. I keep. I think this is the clearest example ever. This is why. I. This is why I think it's catastrophic when the woke gets involved with any of these myths, like Star Trek or Star Wars or the Marvel universe or comic universe. But the one thing that they cannot mess with, the one thing that just drives me nuts, and I think is untouchable no matter what they do, is Superman. Because what Godzilla is to Japan, Superman is to America. Superman is Godzilla and Superman are the same force. They're just looked at from different sides. The Japanese see this overwhelming force as this endless wave of destruction that just keeps coming closer and closer and closer until finally it stops. And then it not only stops, but then it defends Japan against even worse stuff. That's how Japan experienced America. Our experience was to be on the other side of that unstoppable power. So we have the, 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 the legend of Superman. Now look, there's one superhero. There's only one superhero, and that's Superman. This business of Superman versus Batman, is, a, is it just, it's a joke. It, it just, it's a joke. I know all the prestidigitation they had to do to make it happen and so on. You have to have kryptonite because if you don't have kryptonite, then there, then then it's just there's no stories there. But there's only one superhero, and that's Superman. Everybody else is just a guy with a partial power, or I got bit by a radioactive spider so I can crawl up walls, or you know I I get really really angry and really really big. But Superman is invincible. You can't kill him. Superman could take out all of the Avengers and all of the Justice Leagues immediately if you really think about it as a reality as a comic book reality then superman wins in 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 an hour against that wasn't an earthquake that was me banging my leg superman wins in an hour so the thing that i that i admire most about superman as a reflection of american culture is the only thing that restrains superman the only thing that can stop superman ever is superman the only thing that, that Superman, the only thing that can stop Superman is Superman's mor morality. It's his goodness. Superman is constrained by his own morality. He's, ex he's constrained by a sense of right and wrong. He can do anything he wants to. He'd be the ruler of the universe. He could, he could, he could do anything. My, I'm not a deep comic book guy. I understand them from a 
you know, from a metaphysical point of view, I'm not a I'm not a comic book by, guy by any means. But my understanding was that up until that first movie with um, with Henry Cavill, who's terrific, is that up until that moment, Superman had never actually killed anybody with his just killed them. If anybody can back that up. I'd, I'd, I'd like to get that confirmed because it seems right to me. He never killed anybody until he kills. Was it was it when he killed Zod in the second one? He think about that. Now Steve Whip says Democrats are Clark Kent. No, no, they're not. Democrats are are uh, Democrats are are. Um, Lex Luthor. Wrong? Okay. Um, actually, he killed Zod in the comics long before the film. I'm, okay, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about in the movies, I'm talking about in the mythology. The point is, it's it's unusual, right? A lot of people are, oh, Superman can just go kill people. Um, hang on, let me just get this. Uh, Japan 0499. One former Navy officer said he was dreading the U.S. Navy coming to the mainland, but when the U.S. ship came the, to the harbor, the sailors were doing the passing honors to a ship. The Japanese were all amazed, and some cried because people who they'd seen been shooting and attacked by recently were now paying honors to a former enemy. This is this will live in history forever. The, the, the U.S. response at the end of World War II is beyond imagination. Yes, when you have people that proud and 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 you want to talk about having legitimate right to to lord it around and and smash some things and maybe grab some women, if you want to talk about it, what the Japanese uh, obviously operating on a different moral code. I'm aware of that, but from the American point of view, the Japanese perfidy, the Japanese idea of waving a white flag, sending three U.S. corpsmen after these guys to help them, and then having them pull a hand grenade and blow everybody up. That's not just fighting a battle. That is despicable and dis it's subhuman. And so it becomes even more amazing. Yes, this is how this is how you you make a defeated enemy. This is how you defang them. Right? You take away their their you take away their bitterness and you take away the reason why they're fighting in the first place. So if we had gone in there and, and if the Americans had mooned, you know, these Japanese ships and, and laughed at them or fired some dummy rounds at them or just basically just sat there, you know, crowing loud, then the Japanese would have been humiliated and we would have gotten a quick, we would have got a quick little uh, rush out of it. But they would have, they would have resented it and they would have. It would have filled them with thoughts of revenge and starting this thing up again. South's going to rise again, that kind of thing. But when you show them respect like that, it 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 deactivates it. That's kind of the theme I keep coming back to. It's I think it's like a hardwired thing. You know, you've got all of this pride, this Japanese pride, which I admire enormously. I, I don't admire the militaristic culture, and I don't admire the way they the way they fought that war or or the the, the ethics that they had. But you can't take away the. The, just the astonishing, astonishing courage and and um, and dedication, and so when you show them respect, it deactivates 
the whole thing. That's the ultimate win, really. That's that's real. You know, that's really. I, I'm, I'm actually seeing this on a level I hadn't really completely thought about. Mercy and kindness and respect are luxuries from an enemy. It's a America won that war so decisively that they could that we could afford to be magnanimous. That's how big the victory was. Right? We had them so far down and and we were just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And we were damn grateful that they surrendered too, you know. That wasn't easy for them. So there was a bit of that well, so we don't have to get killed, you know, like my dad who was convinced he was going to get killed on the beaches of Jap- of of the Japanese islands and uh, and the chance of that happening to him were high as a uh, second lieutenant in the US Army. Um so you show them respect. A, a, a perfect example, two two great examples of this, both from the Civil War. When the Confederates are surrendering uh, at parts of Lee's army, they 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 bring their battle flags. Uh, battle flags, for those of you not familiar with the Civil War, especially uh, a, a regimental flag or a battle flag is not just the flag. People will fight and die for the flag, and I certainly respect that the American flag. But a but a regimental battle flag is different in the Civil War. It's not just the flag. They put the name of all of their victories. They 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 just stitch them onto the flag. And so for the for these for these Confederate regiments to surrender those flags, that's everything. That's their pride, that's their sacrifice, all the friends that they that they lost, all of it. Giving those things up is 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 it. And there was a ceremony at the uh, in the days after Appomattox where the Confederates who were starving to death, really starving to death, who had just toughed it out and hung out and and really perfectly honestly whipped the Union one-on-one pretty soundly during the entire war, these uh, very proud men had to go and surrender their battle flags, and they were expecting to be just like that uh, Japanese um, uh, naval officer or sailor. And thank you for that comment very much, by the way. They're expecting to be insulted. They're stealing themselves for it, right? They're 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 gritting their teeth and getting ready for the abuse that they're sure they're going to take. And it happened to be Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who is one of my great heroes, the living embodiment of a philosopher, po- of a warrior poet, who I think saved the Union at Gettysburg. And Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain happened to be in charge of that. And when these Confederate, this ragged line of Confederate soldiers were bringing their flags, tears streaming down their faces, instead of everybody laughing, he had the, the line of Union soldiers just snap to attention. And people in the Army will tell me the difference because it is it was really nuanced. Chamberlain had to decide how far to go. Now, I don't remember the difference but there's a difference between between present arms and what's the other one? Because I think present arms was a little too much. But it was something I think it was just one. If somebody can answer that question, you can help me. The um, yeah, the first Minnesota absolutely. They had they could have either just come to attention, 
Order Arms, is that it? NBS Spike, thank you very much. Haven't seen that name. And Scrappy too, thank you very much. Okay, so Chamberlain is sitting there saying, all right, we're not going to humiliate these guys. We're going to come to attention. Actually, we should do something more than that. Should we do present arms? No, present arms is a form of here are our weapons, you know. Here's our weapons. We're not going there. We beat them, and it's important they know that we beat them. So um, order arms. Present arms is to raise your salute. Order arms is to lower it. Thank you for that, uh, King of Cleans. So basically, he, 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 he went, the union went to the trouble to, to, to um, execute an act of military respect, not just refrain from goading or insulting, but, but an act of, of respect, but not the ultimate act of respect, because that's why MacArthur had to show that he was, that, that we kept, yes, you, you get to keep your emperor, your emperor is there, but the emperor is going to renounce his divinity, we're going to make sure about that, and it's going to be pretty clear that the emperor is the emperor at MacArthur's pleasure. So here's your, here's your, your sop to your pride, but let's not go too far with this. You did get beaten, and we're not gonna we're not gonna just pretend like that didn't happen. Um, Rusha Dark Order Arms is executed by returning the weapon to your side so that the butt is resting on the floor, ground, or deck next to your right foot. So, basically, it's if I understand it correctly, it is a gesture of we are now we are not presenting you our weapons, but we are we are withdrawing our weapons. Uh, so, um, anyway, the, the, the Confederates who experienced that was so unexpected and so generous that it, dis, it, it disarmed them in a way that was much more important than having them put their flags and their, and their weapons down. It disarmed their resentment. It, it gave them the dignity for that god-awful walk home. Carry arms. That sounds closer to me. AOC, uh, I, th I think that sounds more appropriate than, if I remember correctly, yeah, carry arms. Um, anyway, that's how you that's how you do it, and that's how that's and the Confederates return the salute. Airtechy says absolutely right. So now, so now we're not, now we're not, uh, now we're not lord and 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 servant or or master and slave. Now we are honorably defeated and honorably victorious and and that is how you deal with these issues we just had it right and i think most of the time we've had it right since then um the uh um mattis in iraq to me this is that's right, Dave Big Booty said, now we're all Americans again. Was that, I think that was Chamberlain who said that, or, or Lincoln was one of them. Uh, so this dynamic is important to understand. It, it really is, because it, it applies not just in, it, it's a psychological mechanism. It's not a military thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a human thing. It's a homo sapiens thing. Tim Morris, USA. So the exact opposite of how Democrats treat Republicans when they win election. Yes, exactly right. Precisely correct. Um, 
Bart says it's better to turn an enemy into a trading partner rather than conquer them. I'm sure that was a large factor of it, but also not just a trading partner. We don't have to, we're, we're not going to face 30 years of guerrilla war this way. So back to the Superman thing. So here's, here are these two views of this cataclysm. I know that Superman first appeared before World War II, but, you know, the guy holding a car over his head. And the, I started this whole discussion by saying that these landing craft and, and transports, we had assembled, we were, we were stockpiling enormous numbers of supplies for our troops, which were going to go into um, Kyushu in uh, September. Let's not forget they, they surrendered in, or maybe it was November actually, November. Um, they surrendered in, in middle of August. In November, we were going to launch Operation Downfall was the name of the, of the defeat of Japan. Operation Olympic was the invasion of the Southern Islands. And then Operation, was it Coronet or Corona? I think it was Coronet. That's the invasion of Tokyo and, 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 the, um, and the main uh, islands. So we've got all of this food being built up and medical supplies that we're prepared to use for the million casualties that we're going to take, American casualties. And all of a sudden, it's over. And nobody knew it was coming. I mean, there were, count the number of people on, uh, there, there might have been, a, when those bombs dropped, there might have been, let me rephrase that, on the day before the mission, there, there might have been, I guess you got to count this. The, uh, certainly, less than 100 people in the United States knew about this, and maybe less than that. Um, and so, for guys like my dad, it's like we're all going to die, and then suddenly you're not. And then I think that had a lot to do with it because the relief, just the sense of relief that we're not going to have to go through this. You got to understand, if you look at the war from the point of view of the Americans, it's like, okay, 1,500 Marines killed in Guadalcanal over seven, eight months, 3,000 or something at, uh, at Tarawa, 5,000 at Saipan, 7,000 at Iwo Jima, 13,000 at Okinawa. The closer you get, the worse it's going to be. And when you get to the mainland, it's going to be it's going to be beyond belief and then suddenly it's over so we took all of this food and medicine and we put it on the assault transports and the landing craft and the lsts and all that stuff the stuff is going to go ashore under fire and we filled it up full of food and we drove it in and we started distributing it and then we started taking our b-29 bombers which had firebombed japan dropped the two atomic bombs these giant silver things these angels of death up there and they come roaring in at low altitude like they had before and now they're not dropping firebombs now they're dropping food and medicine supplies it's a it's it's a miracle it's a miracle it's a miracle anyway uh renzuni says has anyone ever been to ground zero uh hiroshima or nagasaki i, I unless i'm mistaken i think that the technical term that they use is the barycenter that comes from i assume it comes from barometric pressure meaning this was this was where the pressure was the greatest um so i'll tell you what is really genuinely shocking and anybody can do this just go to google earth 
the aim point for the Hiroshima bomb was a very unusual bridge that, that Japan had, in, uh, that Hiroshima had. It was a bridge that had a T. It was like a, a, I've never seen anything like it before. It was like another bridge intersected the bridge in the middle of the bridge, this, this T intersection on this bridge. That was the aim point for the bomb. And the bomb actually, the bear center, because it detonated in the air, but the, the spot it detonated over was, I don't know, maybe a quarter mile or something to the east, I think. You can, oh, Japan says uh, 0499, says, I live in Hiroshima. I've been there many, many times. I'm so glad to hear from you, um, uh, Japan 0499. I'm so happy to hear from you. And I, and I certainly hope if I got anything wrong, you, you let me know about it. But when you look at it on Google Earth, I went to, to look at it. They have kept the um, that domed building whose name escapes me now. It's now part of the Hiroshima Museum. When the bomb went off, the only thing that was left standing was this stone structure with a steel cupola on the top, a steel dome. And that has been preserved. Uh, it's the Hiroshima Peace Memorial now. Okay, so that's been preserved. And that's all. Because if you look at Hiroshima now, you can't find any evidence of the bomb at all except for this one structure. If you look at where the Berry Center is, I looked at it on Google Earth and I couldn't believe it. It's just a row of like regular buildings. There's a plaque on the wall about about this big, just, just about this big, against the wall. You'd walk past it without a second thought anywhere. It's nothing, nothing outstanding. It's just a little tiny little plaque on the wall like this. And it basically says this is the bear center of where the of where the first atomic bomb happened. And you're looking around, and it's gas stations and buildings, and it's no way to tell that this is that this is where this thing happened. And I remember being blown away by that, that 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 the ability to recover was just actually amazing. Um, and I would like to go very much. I would very much like to go and stand there. Uh, Tim Morris points out the, the thing that, that I was talking about 10 years ago. I didn't come up with it. But somewhere around 10 years ago, somebody took a picture of Detroit in 1945 and Hiroshima in 1945. And Detroit is this bustling, gleaming metal metropolis, and, and Hiroshima is just bombed-out ruins. And then below that, they put Detroit and Hiroshima 2017 or whenever it was. Now Hiroshima is this gleaming metal metropolis, and now Detroit is this bombed-out ruin. And um, and there we go. The hypocenter was over Shima Clinic because of the wind drift after it was dropped. A-bomb dome is about 100 or so yards away. Thank you very much for that. Yes, so, so 100 yards off. Um, and... I'd love to, very much love to come over uh, Japan. I like that very much. I've always wanted to visit Japan. Always, always wanted to visit Japan. I've always admired Russia, and I've always admired Japan. I admire the Germans as well, but I have some more reservations about the Germans for reasons I can't quite put my finger on, but nevertheless. Um, and and I, I, I don't mean to offend any of our uh, Chinese friends out there, and certainly don't mean to offend the members of the Chinese Communist Party who might be listening to us on, on TikTok or YouTube. But there's a there's a just an elegance and a and a and a uh, 
elegance that'll do that Japanese culture has that I don't see in Chinese culture. There's a something just really magnificent about about that Japanese entire Japanese culture. Um, just very orderly and and really clean in a, in a lot of ways. The other thing too that the Japanese couldn't believe when the Americans came ashore was they could not believe how fast the Americans built things. Japan muscled themselves into the industrial age just through sheer willpower. They they had studied the West. They they'd been humiliated by the Great White Fleet and had, you know Admiral Dewey and all the rest of it. And they knew they were way behind. And instead of co complaining or crying about it or turning inward like China did, Japan just says, "Okay, so we need to we need to be like the West in terms of weapons and the things we need to make weapons. We're going to keep our our culture obviously, but we're going to orderliness. That's the word. Yes." Um, if I if I visit, wear a suit. I would certainly wear a suit. Wouldn't think of going there in less than a suit. Um, so there's just I don't know. I guess I've probably said enough about this. Uh, it's another interesting thing here. Uh, is it? I'm sorry. Is it Asafindi? Excuse me, Asafindi. Asa Findi, always happy to see new names here, says Japan makes good horseless carriages all right. They do, but they didn't always. And and here's where we start to get into like kind of, oh, I, and I got to get back to that thing about American, what's America's view of what's our current trauma. I'm going to stay on that in a minute. Let me just address this. Um, Dave Big Booty says, uh, suit, Bill's going to go there in full buckaroo bonsai regalia, complete with bow tie. In the 80s, I had, when I was working in a nightclub, I had an outfit that was uh, white shirt, very small collars, awesome. I had a pair of black pants that had a zipper that ran down the left leg, and I had a, I had a double-breasted jacket with shoulder pads that came out to here. And I had a white Japanese silk tie that had a had a rising not a rising sun just the red sun and and Japanese characters which I hope said something other than the guy wearing this is a douchebag although I have no way of knowing anyway it was a wicked awesome cool look I just want to get to the horseless carriage thing so Japan's completely destroyed I mean just flattened after World War II and. So they start to rebuild. I don't know if any, how many of you know this story, but uh, Japan in the early days after World War II had a, a, a officially named either a city or a town. Maybe they built one. They created a manufacturing center, and the manufacturing center was called USA. So that when they sold their product, they could put made in USA on it because I'm old enough to remember when when made in Japan meant it was garbage. Ah, it's a piece of Jap it's Japanese junk. We kind of think of Chinese stuff that way today. It's just Japanese junk. It's just cheap knockoff. It's not very well made. It wasn't very well made. They had nothing to do with. They had no tools. They had no raw materials. But the but the pride you see is that an urban legend, Dave? No. Well, if it's an urban legend, it's a good one. Um, anyway. Japan's 
I don't want to say revenge. Eh, revenge isn't the right word. Um, demonstration was that was that they showed their they showed their uh, their overlords what they're made of. The Japanese manufacturing went from being cheap and awful because that's all they had. To, they had nothing to work with. They had no factories, they had no, no, no machinery, nothing. And very quickly, with companies like Sony and Toyota and all the rest of it, uh, uh, Nikon, um, they, they had Deming. Yes, I'll get to that, Phil. God bless you, Phil. Good to see you. I'll get to Deming in a minute um, because that's a bigger story too. But the Japanese showed what they were made of. And in that regard, what Japan did with manufacturing is exactly the same story as Bridge Over the River Kwai. Bridge Over the River Kwai is about a bunch of British POWs who are being horribly mistreated by the Japanese. They have no way to strike back at them physically. They'll all just be executed. They're being actively humiliated on a daily basis. The Japanese guards are simply just making them basically squat and go to the bathroom in the you know in the middle of the yard. It was Dotson, and and they're and they're just intentionally humiliating these British prisoners because to the Japanese eyes, if you surrendered, you're subhuman. And so, Bridge Over the River Kwai is the story of how the British basically defeated the Japanese by showing them how much better they were as engineers and just in terms of the culture, you know? All right, well, you've you got these bamboo bridges, you just kind of lash together until it falls down. We're gonna go out there and we're gonna send guys to test the soil and we're gonna, we're gonna figure out, the, the line I never forgot, Pierre, was it Pierre Duell who wrote that? He said the difference between the West and the East was that, was that the guy who wrote Bridge Over the River Quarry said the difference between the Western mind and the Eastern mind was he said that the Westerners built the bridge in their mind first. But they built the bridge in their head before they went out into the jungle. They didn't ad, ad lib it. They, they, they basically went to the trouble of building the bridge in their mind. They made blueprints. They did criticisms of it. They, they, they looked at other solutions. They had all of this input from guys who had been coal miners and talking about how much how much these columns will support and all the rest of it. Built the bridge, Pierre Buell, yes. And I think he did also write Planet of the Apes. He basically just built it in their head and then went out and did it. And it, and it made the Japanese just mystified. I was saying a minute ago, when the Japanese saw the Americans come ashore, they could not believe how fast America built things. We had guys ashore, and we had a radio station up and running in Japan five hours after these guys got off the boat. I mean, a significant structure, five hours, and everything's mechanized. The Japanese are still using ox carts, you know, and stuff. They just couldn't believe how fast these Americans were building these things. So here we go again, Japan, the, the, the great, I don't want to say copiers because that's demeaning. Students is a better word. They learned how to get Western weapons. That's what got them into this combination of Western weapons and that Eastern military, that, that you know, divine people thing got them into a lot of trouble. So they learned from the West. They whooped the Russians at Tsushima, and then they built the best Navy in the world. 
And then they made the mistake of attacking the most powerful economic force in the history of the world, and that's what that's what did it. But then they did it again with the um, when they learned about manufacturing, and they learned about how to manufacture from the West, and they learned about how to manufacture things from an American, and and this is the point: they learned about how to manufacture things from an American named Deming. What was his first name? I want to say William. I'm not one hundred percent sure. There's an he was a, he was an an engineer and a business guy and a, and a and a philosopher. He's kind of a John Boyd. And Deming basically was telling American companies in the this would be probably the fifties, I would guess. He said, "Look, we've got to do better. We've got to build better stuff, right? We're getting lazy. We're getting we're, we're acting like we just conquered the world because we did." And so Deming had was it T, was it. You said TQM. I think that's total quality, man uh, total quality maintenance, total quality something. Deming was the guy. William William Edwards, William Edwards Deming. Deming was an American who basically could not get. He could not get listened to in America. He was one of those prophets in, in his own land that nobody nobody listened to him. Why would we have to listen to this guy? He's telling us to completely redo total quality immigration integration. Anyway, the the short form is shorter form is here's an American who said, "Look, this is the right way to build things. We have to make things well. We have to make them to last. Total quality management. Thank you. Um, TQM. So he's basically saying, "Look." We have to make top quality stuff because if we make a top quality automobile, which we used to do in America, if you make, Phil will get a kick out of this. He's the only person on this watching the show live or on tape who's going to get this, and he already knows where I'm going with this probably. There was a guy in in um, in Miami, and uh, he was a Cuban refugee. And and he came to America in the early 60s, I guess, right after the revolution. And somebody had, and he was a mechanic. He probably was a surgeon or something before. He came over here, and somebody drove up to him in a Studebaker. This is actually several years after the, uh, the he fled the communist revolution in Cuba. And this guy saw this car come in and come in, and he said, "Ah." Oh, Studebaker, good, strong car, I have in Cuba. Studebaker, good, strong car, I have in Cuba. He never, ever forgot how well made that Studebaker was. And he was a mechanic his whole life. You still find Studebakers in Havana today, by the way, when you shut yourself off from the rest of the world like Fidel Castro did. The the, the taxis in, in Cuba, in Havana, Jeremy went there... I don't know, 10 years ago, Jeremy went there about a year or two before it became openly, officially open. And he said that all of the taxis there were American cars from the 1950s. That's what they had. They had to maintain these cars. And they were pretty well-made cars. By the time you get to the 70s, we're making garbage. Um, and here's this guy Deming saying... We're going to pay for this. 
we're getting lazy. Let me know if any of this rings a bell, by the way. We're getting lazy, we're getting fat, we're getting complacent, we're getting stupid. We are, we are losing our edge because we own the world, and if we do not stay on top of things, then we are going to end up taking a backseat to these people, to anybody. And we got to stay on our toes. This God, God knows this is, I feel like I'm trying to do Deming's work here and right now culturally. And nobody listened to him. Nobody listened to him in America because why would they? We've just conquered the world in 80s, you know, 60s Detroit is just booming. And of course, people are going to buy an American car. It wouldn't buy that Japanese junk, right? But the Japanese didn't ignore Deming. The Japanese saw what he was saying and they saw this as a path to redemption and, and a return of, of their pride. In, in exactly the right way, through excellence, not through aggression, not through warmongering, not through intimidation. By the way, by the way, for those people who have a problem with the atomic bombs, and not like I'm a, I'm like, I'm not a guy who's like, hey, hooray, I'm just saying they were necessary. But for those people who have this problem with the, the atomic bombs, and that this was somehow some unique kind of, you know, moral line that was crossed, I didn't do the actual math on this, but I came pretty close to it. I'd be willing to bet you, I think there's a, 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 I'm practically certain of this, that more people were killed in World War II by samurai swords than were killed by atomic bombs. In fact, that's got to be true. The number of civilians that the Japanese executed in China, I think they executed 250,000 Chinese just for helping the Americans during the Doolittle Raid. 250,000. Just because of the the Chinese help that they'd given to the um, to the Doolittle Raiders, that's easily more than Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. It's probably more than Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and and the firebombing of Tokyo were concerned. So you know, oh, this is a this is a weapon. You know, it's a completely unparalleled weapon. Well, yeah, but certainly samurai swords killed a lot more people than than um, than atomic bombs did in World War II, a lot more. Um, it's probably millions. In fact, it's certainly millions. Anyway, so the, so the, so the, uh, the Japanese listen to Deming, and, and Deming goes in there, and the, the Japanese, after World War II, we saw, I saw this exact same thing. Phil's older than me, much, much, much older than me. Uh, but so Phil's more aware of it. I was, you know, 14, 15 at the time, Phil was 25, somewhere around there. And I, I'm pretty sure it was Phil who told me about this. The Cuban refugees who left Cuba in that first wave who were fleeing the revolution, and we worked with, with some of these guys. We worked with this guy named Rolando Mias, who was a director of the Miami Planetarium for many years before Horkheimer kind of took over and kind of actually forced him out. It was a little low. Uh, but Rolando Mias was a was a he was a Spanish gentleman, you know, he was a Cuban, he was just a gentleman. He was one of those guys that wore a tie every day of his life, every single day. And in Miami in the 1970s, what I saw were, I saw surgeons opening convenience stores on Calle Ocho, on, on, on 8th Street. There were, there were surgeons that were working as janitors. They couldn't get their credentials transferred, and they had families to feed, and they had the work ethic, so they mopped floors at night. Lots and lots of them. 
they didn't um, they didn't come to uh, they didn't expect anything free. There wasn't anything free to get. They just they just started from zero. But they did two things, and this applies to any group in America today, any group in America today, anyone. They worked their asses off. Number one and number two, three things. Three. Spanish Inquisition. They worked the tails off. They had the discipline to save, and they built their own networks, their own internal networks. Nobody would lend them money to open a bigger store because they've got no credit rating. They've, they've, they've just come here. So this Cuban community would basically pool their money and make investments in other Cuban businessmen who then basically worked with their family, worked their asses off, repaid the loans. Now he's got... He started out with a with a with a with a convenience store. Now he's got three. Now he's got twenty. Now he's got a hundred. Now he also is in in the car dealership business, and so on and so on and so on. And just bootstrapped themselves right up. And that's what the Japanese did too. They just basically did all of that. They just bootstrapped themselves. They didn't wait for handouts. They took the money that they were making with their crummy products and some assistance from the United States, which should not be overlooked considering what the Japanese had done through the war in Pearl Harbor. Nevertheless, they didn't waste it like the British did. They took their money, they saved their money as a nation, and they put it into brand new factories, and then they took Deming's advice about quality and turned Made in Japan from a joke into a a uh, imprimatur into a it's a it's a placard now made in japan now means top quality made in japan cars made in japan electronics made in japan was a laughing stock in a space of 15 years it went from a laughing stock to being best in the world because of the attitude hard work discipline networking and they they bootstrapped their entire country to the, for most of my life, they were the second biggest economy in the world. Second biggest economy in the world. And I think Germany was third. That says a lot about America, if you think about it. The countries, the two countries that had, that had attacked us, that had committed atrocities against our people, for most of my life, the U.S. was just plain, unimpeachably the world leader in everything. And it's not so much that the U.S. fell as these other companies, these other countries came up, but the two countries that, that, that grew the most were the ones that started from nothing, nothing in 1945, Germany and Japan. Hardworking, pride, prideful people, disciplined people who had been treated with respect and, and generosity by America and who learned from, from America and they became better at being Americans than Americans did. They got more and more American, we got less and less American, because that's what success and luxury and uh, affluence will do to you. It will erode that edge. So it's possible for anybody to do this. It's just plain simple, and it's difficult. It's, it's harder than the alternative. And I'm not going to tie this into Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, but if you go to Daily Wire, or I actually think this might be free on, on Apple Podcasts or inexpensive anyway, just go for a look at uh, 
America's Forgotten Heroes and uh, listen to the story I did on um, Booker T. Washington. You want to talk about a tragedy. You want to talk about the American tragedy. The American tragedy wasn't slavery. The American tragedy was what happened 15, 20, 30 years after slavery. The road we could have taken, the road that was right in front of us, that we could have, we could, it, it's just so clear, it's so clear to me. You know, we, we had this choice, we had this fork in the road, it's what to do as a people. And Booker T. Washington said to black Americans, we have to work hard and we have to win their respect. We've got to be, we've got to be the best. We have to be quality. We have to earn it. And W.E. Du Bois said, a terrible harm has been done to us. You need to give it to us. And by the way, when I say give it to us, I don't mean give it to black America. Give it to the talented 10th. This is the black man, W.E.B. Du Bois's philosophy. He basically said, Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois, he's a black American who went to, I think it was Harvard, I think he was the first black American to graduate from Harvard, went to Berlin, learned about this new socialism thing, it's be the early 1900s, late, yeah, late 1800s, early 1900s. And W.E.B. Du Bois said, no, you owe us and, and, and we have grievances and so you, you need to bail us out. But W.E.B. Du Bois had such a low opinion of black Americans that he said only one, this is Du Bois' words, not mine. Du Bois said, there's only one in 10 of us that can handle money. There's only one black American in 10 who's either smart enough or educated enough to handle money. So, Uncle Sam, you give us, the, his term, the talented 10th. You give, us the, the, give the money to the talented 10th, and then we'll go out there and we'll rebuild the, the black community. Booker T. Washington said, no. Booker T. Washington said, we're as good as anybody else, and we just have to show it. And Booker T. Washington started the Tuskegee Institute, and and they had a significantly higher equivalent of a grade point average. But not only that, yeah, Eric Blake, I'm not going to get into this, but then I get into it always. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington. My God, if anybody should be on our money, you know. This actually has got me really emotional. Booker T. Washington at the Tuskegee Institute had to deal with lots of blacks that were exactly like W.E.B. Du Bois. Lots of them. The few educated blacks in America during slavery, during the years after slavery, there were northern blacks, obviously, free northern blacks. And when it became known that there was a, a, a black-run, um, black-only, uh, world-class school, college being show, uh, set up in the United States, down way down in Alabama and Tuskegee, he got a lot of black scholars coming to the Tuskegee Institute. And they got to the Tuskegee Institute, and they expected to be treated like the talented tenth. That's how they felt. He also, by the way, he invited W.B. Du Bois to come down and be a professor. Du Bois went to the South. He didn't go to, and he never went to Tuskegee. Did some time in Tennessee or something, didn't like it, went back. But Washington got these sort of elitist black students down to Tuskegee, and he said, part of being here is we grow our own food we go out on our own farms with land that we bought 
and we raise our own crops, we feed ourselves, and we make our own bricks too. And these black students, these elitists, said, we're not going to work in the field. We're not, we're not field slaves. He said, we don't have any slaves here. We do this because it's important. And when, and when they refused to do it, and this really actually happened, uh, they said, we're not doing it. We're, 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 we came here to get an education. We didn't come here to, 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 to go out and, and, and pick corn. When they said that in class, this is precisely what happened. This is exactly what happened. He got a lot of feedback, got a lot of pushback in a class one day, and he didn't argue with them. He didn't do anything. He just walked to the door. He put his coat on the hanger. He rolled his sleeves up, had his tie on, of course, obviously, grabbed a, a hoe, and just went out there by himself and started working in the fields. Because he wasn't above that kind of thing, you see. He wasn't above hard work. He... he when he, he had heard that there was a, a black university, it wasn't, it wasn't Tuskegee, it was, um, it, was a, it was a university for black students, I want to say, no, it was in Virginia, I think it was in, I think it was in, um, I want to say the Hudson Institute, something like that. I think it was in Richmond. Anyway, um, he heard about this and he decided, I have to be there. This this story needs to be told again. Booker T. Washington, son of, grew up a slave. He grew up in a room with a dirt floor, a little square room. They lived on the dirt floor as a family with thin blankets. I don't think it might have been Howard University. It might have been, but I'm not 100. percent I don't. I don't think so. I think that came later. So Booker T. Washington is the child of a slave, and the reason he got the name Booker was because he was always curious. He wanted to read Hampton Institute. That's it. Yep, the Hampton Institute. And and his parent, his parents were slaves. He was a slave. He was born a slave. He's never sure. He knows what day he was born on. He doesn't know what year. And in the winter time, this shack that they lived in was so cold that these Virginia can get very, very cold, and these frigid winds would come through. But that place that they lived in happened to be like a commissary for the for the for the workers, for the slaves. And so, in the summertime in Richmond, which can also get very, very hot, his mother was cooking for huge numbers of people, and you're stuck in hundred degree temperature with a hundred percent humidity. Now you're indoors with one window. And there's all these boilers and fryers going on. That's not a pleasant environment. He decided he wanted to go, that he had, he didn't decide he wanted to go. He had to go. He had to go to the Sampson Institute. He just had to. And this is where the story gets really, 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 really interesting. Um, he didn't have any money, so he worked as hard as he could. And when it came time for him to go, he said, I'm going to go with whatever I have. This entire community of ex-slaves, former slaves, people who had nothing, they had nothing. They would bring him dimes and nickels or, or like a, a chicken, a pumpkin. They'd bring him whatever they could, anything they could. They'd bring it to him to help him get there. These people who had nothing and much more to the point, much more to the point, after the Civil War was over in the South, 
the slaves knew how to survive because the slaves, former slaves, knew how to grow food, and they were used to working. The people who were starving, really starving and hopeless in the South after the war, were the aristocracy, the, 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 the slaveholders. They're the ones who didn't know how to do anything, and their kids were useless. They just grew up chewing tobacco and eating peanuts and spitting on the veranda while they watched other people do the work. And these slaves, former slaves who had been whipped by these people, got together and fed these white aristocrats because that's who they were. That's who they were. And, and when I hear these stories about, you know, this, when I hear what, what this thing has been turned into today, it just makes me sick. But Booker T. Washington went, he was going to ride a carriage. Thought he'd get a carriage ride all the way there. He, when he found out what the what that cost, he realized that's not going to happen. He got about halfway there. I think he took planned to take a train actually. Then he ended up on like something like a stagecoach, something like that. And he remembers one night where he got to this one place, and it was January. It was cold, freezing cold. And this small group of five, six, seven people who were in this carriage got to this hotel, and they all got rooms, but the guy wouldn't let Booker T. Washington in because he was black. So Booker T. Washington spent that entire night just walking around this building so he didn't freeze to death. And then the next day he got on the carriage and he went, got down to Richmond. And when he got to Richmond, he had no place to sleep. So he found a little area where there's like a little tiny little ditch. And the, the sidewalk, wooden board sidewalk in Richmond was there. And there was a little tiny little ditch there. And he got there and he crawled into that ditch and he slept under that... Uh, slept underneath the sidewalk, literally slept underneath the feet of the people. And he said it took a while for him to get used to hearing the sound of people's footsteps, which were about it, three inches away from his ears. Clunk, 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 clunk. So he wakes up the next morning. He's very, very, very hungry. doesn't go asking for food. He hears the steam whistle from a, from a, a, a ship. He hopes it you know, just got in makes his way down to the pier and what the ship is is unloading or loading i forget which are pig iron ingots so imagine something about the size of a jumbo size snickers bar maybe a little bigger it's made out of pig iron they're heavy and they didn't pick them up one by one they shoveled these iron ingots into the hold of this boat or unloaded it whichever let's just say it was unloading it so he walked up to the captain of the boat and said sir i could really use some work uh can i can i help you unload this for the for the for the cost of a lunch or a dinner or something the guy said yeah okay so he works like an animal for nine hours and the captain gives him the money for the for this and booker d washington has enough money to to actually eat that night and the captain says you really work very hard would you like to come back tomorrow and he says yes so Booker T. Washington goes sleeps underneath the sidewalk again and he saves every penny he just buys enough just to barely stay alive because he's got to get to this Hampton Institute and he eventually found enough to go and he, he and after it was over he didn't shake his fist or shoot a bird at this at this captain who made him load iron ingots in, in, in Virginia he went up to him and thanked him very much for the opportunity to work and, and, and told him he really appreciated it. And the captain said, I'm very, very sorry to see you go. Booker T. Washington gets on away, finishes up at the Hampton Institute. He gets 
um, he sees the building, two-story brick building, maybe three, two, I think, but brick. And he sees the building, and he has this road to Damascus moment where he goes, my God, this is, a, this is an actual school, and it's for us. And he, he hasn't sent, he didn't send in his resume, you know. He just went there, knocked on the door. It's kind of like what I did at the planetarium, except it's a thousand times less impressive. Uh, he walks up to the building, knocks on the door, and says, I, I need to be a student here. And, and the woman who was in charge of this place, I think it was a white woman who was helping to administer it. It was a, it was a black university, but it was funded by northern liberals back when liberal meant liberal. And, um, and she said, no, we don't take charity cases. And he said, uh, ma'am, I'll, I'll do any work around here that you, that you need done. And she said, okay, go clean this waiting room or something. Now, years before, before, before he took this journey, he had taken a job for this woman, a white woman, who was known to be impossible to work for. A number of um, uh, a number of uh, blacks just plain refused to work for her because she was so demanding and so precise and so nasty. Booker T. Washington took that as an opportunity, so he worked for her for years, right? And she ended up trusting him and 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 ended up helping him along. But she was so rigid, and her standards for cleanliness were so high that when Washington ended up getting at the Hampton Institute, when that woman said, "All right, you want to make a you want to make a case, go clean that room," Booker T. Washington is euphoric because he knows how to clean a room because he ended up cleaning a lot of rooms for people that were not very tolerant of uh, mistakes. And this guy had the work ethic of no one that's ever lived on this earth. So he goes into this this room, this big room at the um, at the Hampton, and, uh, and he's in there a long time. And this woman comes in, determined to reject him, determined to say, I asked you to clean it up and all this, 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 and this. And uh, and she does the white glove underneath the thing, and it's spotless, spotless. She says, "Okay, you can work here, and and in exchange for board and tuition." That's that's who he was, and it bears mentioning that the Tuskegee Institute had no real money, the people that ran the Hampton Institute had heard that there was an effort to, to do a, a, another one of these things in Alabama, that they wanted a, 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 like a, a school for, for uh, former slaves in Alabama, and that some small amount of money had been raised, and they needed a director for it. And I forget the name of the guy who was the head guy at this Hampton Institute, white guy. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one person for this job. And he said, however, it's a, it's a black man, but I have no other recommendations for you. This, this is the guy. And the idea of putting a black man in charge of this thing was just real, 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 real daring. And Booker T. Washington is in the chapel, because obviously he's a very religious guy. That's what you need to do this kind of thing, I think. He's in the chapel. 
and during a service the the white leader of the Hampton Institute where he's been working and studying and so on gets up there and makes an announcement and said um, we've told you about this institute that they want to build in Tuskegee um, I received a letter today from the from the uh, the board or the benefactors or whatever and um, they've accepted my resignation the next director of this uh, institute in Tuskegee is going to be Booker T Washington who was in the room and the and the crowd goes crazy you know just just goes nuts and he gets there and he's got essentially no money and he's got no land he's got no building he starts the church i mean he starts the institute in a in a spare room of the church which is in such disrepair that when it rains and it rains hard in alabama that when when it rained in the first days of his of his first classes he would have to have one of the students come up to the front and hold an umbrella over him while he read from the book so that the book wouldn't get completely soaked and then um, then this is the part that really really needs to be told uh, good luck Eric Eric has says I have a Marine Corps OCS tomorrow wish me luck good luck Eric good luck uh, from everybody here I know they're all 100% behind you uh, simplify their buddy and and we're very proud of you and and um, and your Marine Corps uh, accomplished miracles in World War II and they accomplished miracles in Iraq as well. They accomplished miracles everywhere they go. You should be very proud of yourself. We're proud to be. I'm, I'm proud that you're in the audience. Good luck, Eric, and um, I'm sure you're going to kick its ass. Uh, anyway, this is the part that needs to be said. He's looking for property because this is the part that really needs to, 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 to be heard today, not just Booker T. Washington. So Booker T. Washington has to find property and he finds this rundown plantation and he goes to this plantation owner let's just some nobody's making any mistakes here this is a guy who five ten years ago was a slave who goes up to the man who owns a plantation who owned many slaves and said to this white man I would really like to buy your land I don't have enough money to buy all of it now I can pay you half of it now and I will pay you half of it with interest. I forget if it was a year or six months from now. And this plantation owner said, okay, took a handshake from a former slave, took half of the money, and Booker T. Washington paid that money back six months in advance. When he was raising money, he, he ended up, there's a woman came out, I don't know if, he, if it was his wife, somebody came there, I think he was kind of sweet on, and this woman was a great organizer, black woman, and they and she started doing these fundraisers, and, and Washington felt very, very, very strongly that Tuskegee has to be part of Tuskegee, it has to be part of the town, has to be part of, it has to be part of Alabama, the white citizens have to be proud of this place, and that means we got to really deliver the goods. So they would have bake sales and they would have um, they would have like picnics and they'd get a band to come and play and, and, and the white the white citizens of Tuskegee put up most of the money for the Tuskegee Institute. You know, these horrible white supremacist racists, they're the ones who came in and put up most of the money for the Tuskegee Institute 
almost exclusively because of the reputation of Booker T. Washington. And this is the last I'll say about Booker T. Washington. It's all there. If you want to hear the whole story, you're getting most of it now. But when it came time to build this thing, he wanted a brick building, just like the Hampton. He didn't want a wood building. He'd been in a wood building, and somebody had to hold an umbrella over his head while he was reading. Booker T. Washington couldn't get bricks. There were, no, there were bricks made in Alabama, but they were garbage. They were garbage bricks. And so Booker T. took the same attitude as he did towards everything else. He said, we're, if, we, if we grow our own food, then we don't have to buy food. If we don't have to buy food, that's money we can use to buy books. See how this works? So get our asses out there. So that's how they grew this thing. Anyway, he's getting ready to build the actual school now on this land that he's worked his butt off for and, and the rest of his students have worked their butt off for to pay for. And there are no bricks. They're just garbage. Garbage. And so Booker T. Washington says, well, we got to have bricks. We've got plenty of mud here, that's for sure. So we're going to make our own bricks. Well, what experience do you have making bricks? I've never made a brick before in my life, but we're going we're gonna to do it. So he buys a kiln or something, and he it's like the Monty Python routine. He buys a kiln, and he, and he spends a lot of money, well, compared to what he had, sets this thing up to bake some bricks, turns them out, and they just crumble to dust. So he builds a second kiln, and he tries those things, and those things crumble to dust. So he builds a third kiln. This one burns down, falls over, and sinks into the swamp, and still is garbage. And now he's out of money, and he's out of luck. And he had a the only thing he owned that was of any value was a watch. He had a nice watch. And he drove some distance, 20, 30 miles, probably walked it, to pawn this watch. So he pawned the watch. He took the money from the watch. He didn't, all he did was buy a fourth kiln, a fourth method of doing these bricks. These, however, turned out to be very, very good bricks. In fact, they were such, such good bricks that they started selling them. Booker T. Washington then walked back to where he'd pawned his watch to get his watch back, but the watch had already been sold. And he said, Okay, that's okay. Uh, that watch did more good than any other watch in history. But here's the point. Tuskegee was starting to make hundreds of thousands of bricks a year. And southern white racists were coming to him to buy the bricks that they would live in, to build the houses that they were going to live in, these white Southern racists were coming to this black man because this black man had the only quality bricks in the former Confederacy. And it's very hard to look down on somebody when you have to basically go to them with your hat in hand and say, I need top quality stuff here, and apparently white people can't produce that down here. Okay, no problem. There he goes. Excellence, Dave Big Booty got it. The only the only antidote to prejudice is excellence. That's that simple. So that's Booker T. Washington. He got involved with a guy who was a financial guy for Sears Roebuck, whose name eludes me at the moment. And he was an outsider too. He was a Jewish businessman in early nineteen hundreds. That wasn't easy for them either. So these two outsiders, this Booker T. Washington whose whose name was by now golden, and this financial guy who had some money but mostly was really good with with money raised enough money and they built i want to say it was 726 brick schools throughout the south many of which are still standing today of course they are standardized design right we're not going to 
keep reinventing the wheel. He just plain got his own students together, put together a simple plan, copied that plan, raised enough money, went into the communities, raised more money, built these brick schoolhouses, and you can Google them today. These these Booker T. Washington schoolhouses done in cooperation with this this Jewish guy who was a financial guy at Sears Roebuck, and he built 726 of them or something, and they're still there. Many of them are still there. So that's the path, you know, that this country could have gone on. That's that's where we could have been. You know. He said to he said to his students, people look down on us; they consider us inferior. And that means we don't have to be as good as they are. We have to be better than they are. That's the only way to do this. It's the only way. And and we're going to do it. It's just going to take a lot of hard work. So they did it. They just did it. And when I was researching him, I looked up the Wikipedia thing on Booker T. Washington. And uh, they said, of course, he was known to be, you know, the blah, blah, blah. I gave him kind of like a, you know, golf clap of his achievements. But the Wikipedia page said, however, he was considered by most to be a, a race trader that he sold out to, to white interests, that he had made this agreement with uh, white businessmen, that he would agree to keep the, the, the blacks down in exchange for support for Tuskegee. That's what it said on, on the Wikipedia page. I said, well... That's quite an indictment. Let me find out what what are the words of this proclamation that he apparently issued that apparently agreed to subjugate black people to white people in order to, to, to get ahead. There was no proclamation. It doesn't exist. He made a speech, which was unbelievable speech, and that, and that people like W.E.B. Du Bois perceived as kowtowing to white interests, but he never did anything remotely like that. It just was there. When I was researching the atomic bombs back in 2008, the first thing I saw was that no warning was provided. I said, that seems unlikely. And four minutes of research later, I had the front and back of the LeMay circular, the, the here comes the atomic bomb flyers that we dropped all over Japan. The speech that, that they used to condemn him as being a uh, uh, an Uncle Tom, you know, he gave a speech, I want to say it was in Richmond, and it was a big deal. Not only had an, every single important businessman in the former Confederacy was there, every single major banker, every single major investor, it was a, it was like a fair, like a festival. And Booker T. Washington heard about this thing right around this time it's getting to be like okay the southern the, the southerners are trying to find an identity and so they put together what was essentially a future of the south kind of a convention and it was a lot like kind of like you know expos or world fairs there would there be like every people who could afford to do so would put in an exhibit and he asked to put in an exhibit for the tuskegee institute it was granted so everybody's there and Booker T. Washington was scheduled to give a speech. By now, he was quite famous. And he said he went into this tent. It was packed. And it was packed with the richest, most powerful white people in the South and also packed with 
the poorest black people in the South. Both audiences there. And the thing that Wikipedia and the left and specifically W.E.B. Du Bois accused him of in terms of selling out was Booker T. Washington gave a speech. I don't know if it was called the lowering your bucket speech, but that, that's how I remember it. Here's basically what he said. He said, he, I think he told the story, true story apparently, when they were when the Spanish were exploring South America, they came to the mouth of the Amazon, and for some reason that he explained that I don't remember exactly, there was a a a ship that was on the sandbar or something, and they couldn't get to it, and they were running out of water. They were out of water. They were dying of thirst. It's hot down there, and they were sending up signal flags and stuff saying, "Bring us water! Bring us water! Bring us water!" And nobody could get to them, and eventually. They started signaling back, drop down your bucket. In other words, take a bucket, tie a rope to it, throw it overboard, and bring that water up. And these people on the ship are saying, no, we need something to drink. And they get back, drop your bucket. He said, you idiots, you drink seawater, you're going to die. This is Booker T. Washington telling the story. And they said, lower your bucket. So they did. And when they pulled it up, it was fresh water. And the reason it was fresh water was because they were at the mouth of the Amazon. All of that flow was going outwards. In other words, the people who were looking for something were looking for something to come from somewhere else when it was, when it was right underneath them the whole time. That's why he chose that story. And he concluded by saying, so I say to, I say to our, our, our white friends here, lower your buckets here. You know, don't don't go looking for 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 workers from foreign countries or any of these new immigrants and stuff. Don't look to the north. Don't hire Irishmen. Lower your buckets where you are, as J.B. Coulter just said. Use us, he said. He said there are seven million of us that are either. This is a pretty much a direct quote. He said either we are going to be seven million people dependent on you to feed us, or we're going to be seven million productive citizens who contribute to this society that we live in together, so lower your bucket here. And when he was finished, some of these, there were newspapers from the North, all of these white guys, obviously, and some of these Southern aristocrats and bankers were crying. They had tears streaming down their faces because Booker T. Washington had given them a vision of what the South could be and what life could be like. Lower your bucket here. He said, use us. He said, we know, we know you. We know you and we love you. You're our neighbors. We work together out there. You know? Use us. And everything was set to go. And then we ended up on the, we ended up on the uh, mirror, mirror, alternate timeline. You know, we're on the wrong timeline. W.E.B. W.B. Du Bois comes in and says, no, we shouldn't have to work that hard. We're, we're already educated men, and, uh, and basically threaten white leaders with, look, if you, want, you know, if you want to keep the population more or less calm, give us the money and we'll distribute it. He's exactly like Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson. And... Uh, 
and then um, then the country had to decide which way to go. And they went with Du Bois. They went with Du Bois because it's easier. It's easier. Um, so, uh, yeah, Marisha Dark says we worked 40 years, 400 years without pay already. Well, there it was, there it was right in front of us. And, uh, Nope. Nope. That's a, that's the greatest tragedy in American history, right there. Uh. <sighs> anyway, uh, that's one of America's forgotten heroes. And, and, if, and they asked if I wanted to do a second series. I didn't get a number of names come to mind. Two of the names I wanted to do. I couldn't figure out how to make them into stories. One of them was Deming, and the other one was, um, oh, come on. I, I, I'm getting a little concerned about this uh, inability to remember things here. And I'm not going to look up, and I'm, not, I'm just not. Borloff. Norman Borloff, um, Borlaug, yeah, I wanted to talk about him too. He's an agrarian. People say capitalism kills and, you know, white imperialists have murdered all these people. And certainly there's some truth to that, although I don't think it belongs to America. Norman Borlaug, uh, has saved probably four billion lives, I think. Uh, Cody Fett says, a super chat, the end of Up From Slavery talks about how racial harmony is springing up everywhere, and you know that Woodrow Wilson is right around the corner. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Woodrow Wilson was a was he was he the former chancellor? I want to say Princeton. I think it was Princeton. Woodrow Wilson was a white intellectual racist Democrat. Woodrow Wilson was the one who basically determined they were going to go down the path of W. E. B. Du Bois because they could talk to each other as two elitists, one to the other, and both have a chance to look down on on regular people. Woodrow Wilson and the progressive movement are what gave us the 16th Amendment in terms of income tax. It's what gave us the 17th Amendment in terms of taking away the power of the states and the Senate. It gave us prohibition. Uh, Wilson also segregated the military. No, I did not know that, Eric. I did not realize that. That never occurred to me because clearly Southern uh, black troops fought in the Union armies, and then suddenly they didn't, so he segregated it. Great. Woodrow Wilson's one of the four Democratic presidents that have basically just, just trashed the country. And he was the first. FDR was the second. Johnson was the third, and Obama was the fourth. I'm not going to include Biden because Biden's got nothing to do with it. Biden's just a face on on. 
Biden is just a face on the on the avalanche that um, Obama started. Yes, Woodrow Wilson's favorite movie was Birth of a Nation. That's true. The story of the founding of the Ku Klux Klan. And Woodrow Wilson, uh, Eric Teke says he segregated the whole civil service. Remember that, you uh, racist Republican white supremacists. Don't ever give these people the moral high ground. They didn't earn it. They don't own it. It's ours. Zoe is on this subject like, like, well, like white on rice. Uh, he is... Um, Anyway, yeah, all right, well, so uh, hopefully that answered your question for you there, uh, Ian. I'm sorry. I actually don't know whose question that was. I guess I just launched on it. Uh, here's one from Ian Nolan. Bill, it seems to be, yes, that's where we started, I guess. No, I don't remember. It seems so long ago. Uh, Bill, it seems to me that Putin is more a Russian imperialist. That, yes, somebody came in with the comments about the, uh, the uh, Ukraine going into Russia, and that's how we get started on this whole thing. Because obviously, Ukraine uh, launching a raid into Russia leads directly to Booker T. Washington um, via Godzilla and, uh, and uh, you know, the atom bomb. Uh, it seems to me that Putin is more a Russian imperialist than a true believing communist. On the other hand, there's his grandfather and the fact that he considers the fall of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical tragedy in history. But on the other hand, he's called communism a failed economic system and made the Gulag archipelago required reading in Russian schools. Thoughts? Uh, I don't mean to challenge you, Ian, and, I, and, I, and I'm not challenging you. I'm just, my, my, emission, my first reaction to this is I find that Remarkable. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just say I find it remarkable that he has the Gulag Archipelago's required reading in, in Russian schools. I, I find that difficult to believe. But if you're if you're sure about it, I believe you. Um, I think I don't think I disagree with you when you. But see, when you say that he's more of a Russian imperialist than a communist, there's really no difference. Communism, the the, the Soviet communist system was predicated on expansion. It was a monopoly. It had to force other companies, other political systems. It, it, it was a zero-sum game for them. One of the things that I was most proud of in the Civil War was, a, I'm sorry, the Cold War. It just seems like the Civil War. It's a long ago it's taken. But one of the things that was clear to me, and this is from the George Kennan and the Long Telegram, capitalism can live in a world with communism. But communism cannot live in a world with capitalism. That's it. Capitalism can exist with communism because we can look at, 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 at what it does to people with uh, regret and sorrow and, 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 and certainly a, a well-deserved uh, apprehension and, um, and uh, suspicion. But communism can't live on the same planet as capitalism, and that's why Communism spent so much of its effort making sure that its own citizens didn't know what's going on outside of its own country. That's what North Korea is about. North Korea, the North Koreans believe they live in the they believe they live in the richest, most successful country in the world. They really believe it. How, why would they not? They have no other they have no other source of history. 
I believe you. I'm 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 surprised and pleased. Um, so if you so North Koreans think yes, we're starving, but at least we're not as starving as Americans are. Right. So there you go. Scrappy says right now Russian isn't communist. No, it's not. But Vladimir Putin is, and just to be fair to me, what I really said was Vladimir Putin is a is a former KGB agent who believes in the totalitarian state that, that the Soviet Union was, and he is also a gangster. He is a he is an organized crime operative. He he tried to join the KGB at 16 or 17, was turned away, joined when he was 18. For those of you who don't know the, the reference to the cook, there's only one person that lived with Lenin that wasn't part of Lenin's family, lived in the house with Lenin. And that same person was the only person who lived in the house with Stalin, who wasn't in Stalin's family, related to Stalin, and that was the cook. And his name was Spiridon Putin. Lenin and Stalin's private cook for their entire lives who lived with them in the house was Vladimir Putin's grandfather. And Vladimir was 13 when granddad died, so granddad, Spirit and Putin, had the ringside seat to the Soviet Union. Nobody was closer to, to the inside of the Soviet Union than Spirit and Putin. No one was in that spot, either with Lenin or with Stalin. Forget about it, with both of them. So... So he, he understands the power of, of, of communism. He understands the power of information control. He has enforced that upon Russia now. He's, he's the kind of... He, many, many things that he does are the result of his Soviet orientation. The information control, suppression of dissidents. There's some pretty significant evidence that he actually was behind some of these explosions that got blamed on Chechen terrorists that allowed him to crack down on them and that's what really made his bones in terms of his reputation in moscow once he moved out of st petersburg he was born in leningrad so putin is dyed in the wool communist to the degree that he believes in the power of a centralized state and that the strongest man is the right person for the job and everybody will do that at the same time he's also a master grifter He's very almost. I, I don't think there's really any question about it. Vladimir Putin is the richest man in the world by, by, by I think, by a couple orders of magnitude over Elon Musk, who earned it. Vladimir Putin essentially owns a significant share of Russia, everything that it produces, the oil, raw materials, all of it. He owns. He's in on a on a cut of all of it. So, it's true that Russia today is not run like. The Soviet Union, Russia today is run like an organized crime family. That's exactly how it works. There are people who come to Vladimir Putin and who say, if you give me the authority and the power to do this, then I will make this happen, and I'll break as many teeth as I need to to make it happen, and then when it happens, you'll get this percentage. It's, it's just like a don. And here comes some, some you know, here comes some couple, you know, some more of his captains come in. And that's how the system operates. Putin provides political legitimacy to people that run a, essentially a kleptocracy. Period. That's it. So he's both of those things. And um, but my 
the point I was going to make is when you said he was not a communist, he's imperialist. The, 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 the communist system had to keep growing. And when it stopped growing, it started to rot with, with Brezhnev. They're, in, they're, in, they're indistinguishable. Really, honestly, especially after this last series, we really shouldn't be calling what happened in Russia communism. We should be calling it Leninism because it is a specific take on communism. And virtually all of the communism in the world, Cuba and China even, it's essentially Leninism, right? Powerful centralized state, control of information, you know, repression of the people through fear and terror, all the rest of it. Um, so part of Leninism is that Russian psychology. And the Russian psychology is you've got a country that covers 11 time zones. Vladivostok, I don't know what the distance from Moscow to Vladivostok is, and I'm not going to ask Siri because I don't use those things, although undoubtedly Siri's listening to me now even though I don't know it. But the distance from Moscow to Vladivostok, it, it, I think it's, it's about equivalent from the distance of Moscow to New York or, or more. So you've got this enormous country, wild country, very environmentally hostile country, filled with very tough people that are not connected to each other by road systems, really. I'm not saying there are no roads in, in Russia. I'm just talking about historically. Little islands, little islands of towns and small cities that don't interact with each other. They all, everything connects to the center of Moscow. Everything, everything goes to Moscow. If you want to go from one place to another, um, if you want to go from Novosibirsk, uh, where my wife was born, to Sochi, where she uh, spent many years afterwards, you have to go through Moscow. You cannot fly direct Novosibirsk to Sochi. You have to go from Novosibirsk to Moscow, Moscow to Sochi. Today, even. 5,770 miles, yeah. What's the distance, just out of curiosity, New York to Moscow? I'm just curious to see how close I got it. Um, so, so you've got a guy who, who who's whose upbringing teaches him that, that there are no Russian people. There are just, and it's, this is from socialism, they're not individuals. They're, the, socialism looks at human beings as economic assets. They accuse us of capitalism, but capitalism never put a gun to your head and made you go work anywhere. It's socialism that looks as people, 4,604, so not too far off. That's not bad, a 1,000 miles is 1,000 miles. Um, so, um, so Russia as a country, in order to exist, has to be, there, it's so unfathomably huge that there has to be in order for there to be a national identity, it's got to be very, very strong from the center. And all of these things have to connect to Moscow because if they don't, if they connect to each other, then Russia is 30 countries. Um, and so he, this is how he solves problems. This is how he fights wars. He fights wars like, like a communist, because he is. 
we got a problem here? Yeah. Okay, well, throw some more men at it. Well, they're not trained. Well, that's not my problem. Just keep throwing men at it. What about our super tanks? Uh, well, as it turns out, um, our super tanks, just as one of many, many examples, uh, we're going to send our T-90s down there, or the T-80s. They've got that strange-looking blocks around them on the, on the turrets and on the side that's called uh, reactive armor. And the idea behind reactive armor is, as an incoming uh, round hits the, hits the outside of that reactive armor, it immediately explodes, and that explosion takes virtually all of the force away from that penetrating bolt of liquid metal that an armor-piercing round is. So the idea of reactive armor is it, it essentially explodes on contact and blows most of that force away. There's, there's steel underneath it, but not nearly as much or as hard as the steel on an M1 or something like that. So reactive armor is reactive armor. I've never thought much about reactive armor. I'm not sure how effective it is. I certainly don't like the idea of if you take, every time you get hit, that block is gone, right? So my point about reactive armor is, um, Vladimir sending his super tanks down to Ukraine to make that uh, little weekend victory that he was expecting. And these tanks are just being, they're just being evaporated. Now, not all of them, a lot of them is because the Javelin and the MLAWs, American and British inventions, have their, their, their revolution in, in military affairs. These are weapons that change what warfare is. When one guy with a, when one guy with a Javelin can take out a, a main battle tank, then the age of the main battle tank is basically over. Uh, C.B. Tome says M1 armor isn't steel, it's made up of layers. Yes, Clobham, is it Clobham armor? British developed a super hard kind of steel, but it is layered and, they, and, and that they've maximized protection with it anyway. Anyway, he sends these tanks down there, and they're getting blown up. They're getting wiped out. Why? Well, one reason, one reason is because these tank commanders are wondering why their reactive armor didn't work. And it turns out their reactive armor didn't work because when they cut it open, this little blocks all around the tank, in many cases, it, didn't, it wasn't filled with uh, explosives. It was filled with a block of wood. That was the exact same size as the explosives. Wood armor is not effective against modern anti-tank rounds. So you say to yourself, well, why is there wood blocks instead of armor? Because now we understand what modern Russia really is. It's communist military mindset, but it is also a kleptocracy. And the reason that these tanks are getting destroyed and the reason that there's wood blocks there instead of reactive explosives is because wood is cheaper than reactive explosives. What's well, not true, John, about the, react about the wood blocks? I've heard this story from a couple different sources. Uh, if it's wrong, I'm certainly happy to admit that I wasn't there. But what I have heard is, is that I believe what lie, John? Lies, lies, lies. Lies about Russia? These are from Russians. They're wondering why their tanks are blowing up. They find wood blocks where the reactive armor is supposed to be. They sold it. There's no question about this. There's no question about it. They, the entire Russian system is hollow because, where do you think those billions of dollars for yachts came from? 
Where do you think they? Where do you think those billions of dollars of yachts came from? Those billions of dollars for guys to have private yachts came from money that was spent by the Russian Defense Ministry to provide weapons, and they don't provide weapons. They provide something that looks like a weapon, and the reason they do it is because they never expected to have to use it. That's the actual explanation. That's why they thought they could get away with it. They never thought they'd have to use it. But that's what happens. And it's not just it's not just explosive armor. It's it's virtually all of their weapon systems. These guys are going into in the first waves, these guys were going in in their in their um, MiG 25s, their ground attack aircraft, and they are going in there with with GPS systems taped to the dashboard. I didn't call you a troll. I'm just saying this is not a one-off story. It's not like I heard this from the from the uh, the uh, the war ferry. You know, I, I, I've been studying this in some detail, so I know that I didn't mean to yell at you. I'm mostly just I'm mostly just excited or, or, or agitated about the idea that this whole thing is just fiction. It's not fiction. This is how the kleptocracy works. That's how it works. There's a comment for you. Fire Waco says that's almost as corrupt as the Biden family. Yes. 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 Exactly. So I wasn't yelling at you, John. I'm I'm not I don't mean I don't mean any disrespect. I'm just saying I am hearing a lot of revisionist stuff about all this stuff and saying, you know, things like oh, well, you know, Vladimir Putin's on our side. He's not on our side. Vladimir Putin's not the direct, direct uh savior of western civilization. He's not. He's our he's our mortal enemy. It has been, always has been. And I know which direction that invasion went. I'm sorry, I said MiG-25 meant SU-25. So, so these guys are going in there in in front line. These are their front line forces that went in in February of, of last year. Their front line attack craft have have handheld Garmin GPSs taped to the side of their instrument panel. And I've seen the photos of that. I've seen the photos of that of, of planes that are in the air. Story on wooden reactive armor. Uh, so I don't have time to read that, Marusha. Does it does it deny it or does it confirm it? I'm just curious. Um, so, so wait a minute. Hold on, Mariner says. So there's essentially no difference between Russia and the globalist American empire. There actually is, uh, Mariner. The difference between uh, Russia and a, an American empire is that a globalist empire based on capitalism is voluntary. You don't have to buy things if you don't want to. Communism, on the other hand, is not voluntary. That's coercive. So, to equate uh, uh, to, to equate market dominance with military uh, power is kind of a kind of a big leap. Um, so anyway, there you go. So this thing is is how a kleptocracy works, and. Putin suffers from the same kind of disease that all totalitarians suffer from, and that is when there is one guy at the top and he's not going to be replaced, it's not like he's going to get voted out of office, he's not going to be term limited out. One of the things that they did not too long ago was they changed their constitution to essentially say that his first two terms didn't count so that he could do another two terms or whatever their fig leaf of a, lim of a limit is. Okay, so... 
they never expected that they would have to use the weapons. I'm not talking about Putin. I'm talking about the guys that made the decision to put wood blocks in there. I, I've seen their 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 um, their so-called armor vests, and I've heard lots and lots and lots and lots of audio interceptions of Russian soldiers calling their wives and their fathers and saying our stuff doesn't work. It's not here. We don't have anything. The Russians claim the wood is to handle javelin missiles. Probably a cheap infield way to add a slight layer of extra protection. Well, that's just plain absurd. You're trying to tell me that they're trying to say that wood is a better agent at stopping an incoming javelin missile than, than, than reactive armor? No. No. It's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's what communism sounds like. That's what, that's what communism sounds like when they get pushed into a corner. When, when Chernobyl exploded, their reaction was, we have no idea what you're talking about. We have no idea what you're talking about. Boom. You know, there you go. So, javelins hit from the top. Yes, that's one of the reasons why they're um, a revolution in military affairs. When a guy with, a, with an anti-tank, with a, with a deadly anti-tank weapon, especially a fire-and-forget weapon, unlike a bazooka or even a tow, you don't aim it and stay with it on a bazooka you, or, or, a, or a RPG for that matter. you got to just shoot it like a bullet. you got to hope you get the... the you hope you got to get the elevation and the and the lead right and all the rest of it. Uh, a wire guided weapon like a tow is a is a significant improvement because that thing trails a wire behind it. Uh, tow is a some I forget what tow stands for. Something operated weapon. So a tow missile flies and you guys steering it and and he's just watching the back of the tow missile's got a little glowing thing on the back and you're just steering this thing. You just steer it right on there, but you're running out of. A wire while you're doing it that thing may be in flight for four five six seven seconds meanwhile people have seen that launch smoke and you're standing there watching this missile go in there's a similar situation to that in the air the uh fox one of aim seven missile semi-active uh, radar missile is what we used to have up there and the sparrow was a was a radar guided weapon and the the sparrow rode rode the radar beam from the launching jet so if i'm in an f-15 and i detect a russian or i detect an enemy aircraft up there and i fire a seven an aim seven that's a fox one missile i have to maintain the aircraft's radar lock on that on that um vehicle on that aircraft until the missile hits that's not good because while i'm keeping that radar lock i don't get to go and defend against whatever he might have shot at me an amram on the other hand fox three Benefits a little bit from having that lock, but but the but the AMRAM will guide itself. It's a fire and forget weapon. I point it, I shoot it, I get the hell out of there. The same thing for the javelin. The javelin's a fire and forget weapon. You get the thing in the sights, you get the tone, you fire the button, and you get the hell out of there. That is a that makes an infantryman capable of stopping not just one tank. You could three or four guys in an, in, in an infantry squad could take out ten tanks. That's a that's not the same war that we're used to fighting anymore. If I was over there now, armor is the last place I would want to be. That is the that is the last place I would want to be. I wouldn't want to be in a tank, and I sure wouldn't want to be in an armored personnel carrier. I don't care which side you're on. I don't care what battlefield it is anymore. If you're going up against Western countries, I don't want to be in a, in a vehicle. I want to be 
I want to be so spread out that they're going to have to spend a ton of money just to kill just one guy. And these things are these things are they're just real. There's fundamental differences. Speaking of the Amram, by the way, I'll tell you what grinds in my gears. Uh, the um, Bill, I said in my super chat, single shot missiles are were rendered obsolete by trophy and other modern hard kill APS. Are you talking about like a, is that a point defense system for for vehicles? Because I know that some of them do exist, but they're certainly not as common as the anti-tank weapons are. Um, and the javelin, because it's self-guided, you could never do this with a tow missile. It's you, you shoot a bazooka. Look, tanks have to balance three things. They have to balance their mobility, their armor, and their firepower. These are the three variables that you have with a tank. Same thing for battleship, for that matter. There's only so much weight you can have before the thing can't go over a bridge or sinks in the mud, and the M1's pretty close to that limit. So if you go with speed, speed is good, gets you there in and out faster, also provides some defense if you're fast, used to anyway, so speed is something that's nice to have. Firepower is something that's nice to have. Bigger gun means you can kill more of those guys at a longer range, and armor is nice to have because the more of that you have, the more survivable you are, but you can't have all of them, and you can't have all three. You've got to, every single tank, every single airplane for that matter, every single battleship is a decision made as to how are we going to balance these three things. One of the reasons that the um, that the HMS Hood was, the reason the Hood w went up in, in, in a flash was because the British had a theory that if they had enough speed and enough guns, then they don't need that much armor. If we've got enough speed, we are the ones who determine the range. We just stay out of the range of enemy vessels. We don't need that much armor. We got big long reach with our big guns. So we'll build these battle cruisers. And unfortunately for the, the men on the hood, which was almost 2,000 of them, I think three of them survived, the Germans uh, hadn't read that memo. So the Germans hit them with a battleship that had better armor and better guns, better gunnery too, I might add, and gone. Robert R Rivera says, our tanks go in the way of the battleships. Yes, I think they are. I really do think they are. Um, these, as weapons get more and more sophisticated, they are, this is not new. Javelins and MLAs are great, but Ukraine has used them all up. We're not on a war footing, so we're not churning them out at the rate necessary for Ukraine to win. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, I know that the stuff we are sending is not our frontline stuff, but I'm not going. I'm 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 just not going to get into that. I just don't see any reason to APS active protective system. So it's countermeasures against. Um, anti-tank guided missiles okay fair enough but i think you'd probably agree that those are expensive and that they're and that they're more difficult it's more difficult to defend against an incoming missile than it is for the missile to hit a tank it's harder for the tank to shoot a missile to hit a missile than it is for the missile to hit the tank so while it's true that active protective systems can defeat missiles on a one-on-one -on -one purely technological point of view out in a battlefield laboratory or something but in the real world there are essentially 
very, very few of those things out there. The, the Israelis have, uh, what is that system of theirs? It's, and, I, and I think we've adopted it, where it, it can detect an incoming RPG round, and, and it does basically what reactive armor does, just kind of blows an explosion out at it and knocks it out of the sky. But that is not widespread. And besides, you, you can build... How many how many javelins can you build for the cost of a tank? So ultimately, 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 when it's all said and done, it, it's about it's about economics. It's about who can who can outlast the other. You got a very highly kinetic situation. You're burning through ammunition. You're burning through all of this other stuff. Iron Dome, I think, is for their cities. I think the stuff they have on vehicles got a different name. Um, M1A takes $500 to turn on and needs treads at 2,000 miles. Tanks are obsolete in most situations, now says Steve Wook. Uh, regardless of how, wh what their endurance is, they cost a lot more than a, than a missile does. And even if you put these armored, these anti-missile systems on them, unless they're energy-based and they're not, you only have a limited number of rounds. So if, if I can make 20 javelins for the cost of a tank and you can defeat five of those javelins with an anti-missile system, I'm still going to get your tank and I'm going to do it at significantly less cost. Now, I'm all in favor of these things for our guys. I think it's great if you're in a situation where a couple of rounds are sneaking through, but ultimately there's limits on everything. I mean, there's, there's, there's limits on everything. And the reason that I'm thinking the tank is finished is because this is this is the mega trend. It's not just recently; it's the mega trend. When weapons are like a like a, a, a an unrifled musket ball has an effective range of maybe a hundred yards maximum, probably less than that. Because the ball just starts spinning off, and you just aim right at a guy, and the bullet just goes anywhere you want to. So, in order to get hits on an enemy formation, you got to pack your guys close together. You got to make up for volume what you lack in accuracy. Each one of these musket rounds has a relatively small chance of hitting, but when you put a couple hundred of them out there, a volley's going to do some damage. So, you got to pack your guys together. And that means that the guys you're fighting have to be packed together so they can knock down your guys. So, that's the way it is. Same thing on on like a, a, a ship of the line from the age of sail. You've got, you've got I, I forget what HMS uh, um, Victory had. I think it had a 300-gun broadside, something like that. So you have lots and lots of guns because they're not terribly accurate and they don't have tremendous range, so you need a lot of them. Now, you can have 300 guns on HMS Victory, or you can have... Let's just say for the main armament, you could have nine guns on the Iowa. They've got a lot fewer guns, but their range is 26 miles, and Victory's range is probably a mile, not much more than that. So same thing for infantry. You, now that you have rifled musket balls, like mini balls, now you've got more accurate weapons. You don't need as many guys you can disperse. Now when we have, the, when we have these weapons, semi-automatic weapons, a combat unit is... Eight guys, 10 guys, 15 guys. It's not 300 guys. The lethality has increased so that the numbers of people needed to inflict that lethality 
goes down. And that's been the way of things. And this thing with the tanks is on that same basic meta timeline. Decentralization, as the weapons get more sophisticated, you need fewer and fewer and fewer assets to do the job. So the thing about lasers, uh, like laser defense, it's not really feasible for the field yet. It's certainly feasible on, on uh, warships. And by the way, one of the reasons the Ford-class uh, carriers uh, are, are so remarkable is because with two reactors, they generate, I think it's at least twice, and it may be four times as much, I think it's certainly at least twice as much electricity as the Nimitz-class carriers. And the only reason to have that kind of excess electrical power is to use, is to power energy-based anti, uh, energy-based defense weapons, anti-aircraft um, weapons, anti-missile weapons. People think that the nice thing about an energy weapon is that it's, um, is that it's fast. It is. Got to keep that beam on the target for a little while, but they move at the speed of light. That's great. But the real reason that the energy weapons are such a game changer is not only that they can engage targets and more of them, is that they cost $30 a round or something in electricity to fire. And they, there are no limits to it. As long as you've got a power plant going, you fire that thing all day. You don't run out of, you don't run out of anti-missile defense. Right now, most of the fleet detection is done by standard three missile carried on primarily on Arleigh Burke class destroyers. So the standard missile is an amazing missile, but it's an anti-air missile and it can be used against incoming missiles. So fleet defense is you surround the carrier with surface warships, used to be Ticonderoga class cruisers, but the Arleigh Burks are just so capable and considerably less expensive. You surround your, your carrier with these um, DDGs, these uh, guided missile destroyers, and when incoming masses of, 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 of missiles come in, and they're going to come in by the hundreds of them, these destroyers and, and cruisers launch these standard missiles, and all these missiles do is kill incoming missiles. That's all they do, basically. Airplanes are not going to get close enough. To, they, the airplanes have a standoff weapon. So the, so the idea is you got a fleet. Here's an American fleet. Here comes an enemy force. They're coming in with bombers. The bombers have standoff weapons in terms of cruise missiles. They drop their cruise missiles. The bombers get the hell out of there before they're in range of the fleet's anti-air defenses. The missiles come in low and fast, ideally. And then it's up to the anti-missile missiles on board the U.S. fleet to shoot down those incoming missiles. And you better get them all. Because unlike the Iowa and the battleships that had actual genuine armor, most ships today, including ours, are made out of aluminum because they're faster and and they don't take the kind of hits that that an old battleship or a cruiser could take. I remember reading Tom Clancy. I think it was Red Storm Rising. I think it was that. And they basically, if you took like the Iowa or the or, or the you know Missouri, one of these one of the the, the four final design battleships that we built. If you put them into a missile war now, they'll stay afloat forever. Those things are designed to take unbelievable amounts of punishment. I think I think Clancy said, "Yeah, you blow the superstructure off of it, but you won't sink it. This thing will just keep going forever. Just keep going and going and going." Um, so all this stuff is constantly in state of flux. It's always changing. Um, 
Missiles cannot outrun a round fired by a tank cannon, says, uh, says Gary Owens. That's true. Can't outrun it, but it can intercept it. I've seen, um, I've seen both energy weapons defeat incoming mortars, not just rockets, and I, I, I'm virtually positive they can get artillery and tank rounds as well. I know they can. And they can also do it with, um, with things like the phalanx. You just shoot enough bullets up there radar-guided bullets. It's probably much easier to shoot down an incoming mortar round than it is against a jet because the jet's maneuvering. Uh, electromagnetic guns, Hippie Kusher says, uh, yeah, the rail guns, that, that was going to be why the Zumwalt destroyers were built. We built, I think we built three of them or maybe five. They're being decommissioned. They're useless. And they're useless because the main weapon that they were going to deploy isn't working. There's a lot of reasons for this. They said they cut the funding and so on, but nevertheless, the Zumwalts have not been a stellar success, and neither have the um, the littoral combat ships, the LCSs. I saw a video of, of the of the the names and numbers of the ships that were going U.S. Navy ships that were expecting to be decommissioned this year, and half of them are LCSs that were built in the last ten years, seven eight years. They call them little crappy ships. They're just, they were a theory that just didn't work. There, the idea was you take small, fast vessels. Littoral means brown water, close to shore. And instead of building one big old destroyer, you buy three or four of these littler ones and you have more flexibility, you cover more ground, more missions, and all the rest of it. But it just didn't, just didn't pan out. They, 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 they're not effective. It's total bullshit that they cut the railgun program. Okay, did they? Are you saying it's it's bullshit that they cut it, or are you saying the story that they cut it is BS? I don't know which one of those it is. Um. Anyway, so uh, just since now we're on the the, the missile subject, because uh, it's stuff I'm interested in. Yeah, that's right. Infidel42 says the LCSs are showing up with all kinds of hull cracks, if I recall correctly. They're badly made. And that's not... This is this is why... This is why you need guys like Denning, right? When you get really, really good at something, you get lazy and stupid and fat and slow. And I suspect that's what's basically happening. Um, uh, let's see. Uh... Yeah, they're basically glorified patrol boats. Yep. Yeah, it's it's BS that they cut it. It is BS that they cut it, Tim. It's BS that they cut the Apollo program. It's BS that they cut what the space shuttle was originally going to be. And of all of the BS cuts that have ever been made, I think the biggest one was was probably the super uh, conducting super collider. Collider. We spent ten billion dollars on building it, then we spent another ten billion dollars on decommissioning it. We never finished it. We just cut the money. You can't run a government like that. You can't run a society like that. It's nuts. It's nuts. Um, absolutely insane. Large numbers of uh, of uh, LA class uh, attack subs are being decommissioned, but that's good news because the the Virginia classes are far far better. I've done. Uh, spent a lot of time on a, on a sub-sim called Cold Waters, and I had a chance to, in my expert opinion, of course, to run um, both Virginia-class subs and the Seawolf-class subs. The Virginia was a scaled-down version of the Seawolf, which was the best submarine ever built, just too expensive. 
So we built two of them or three? I want to say it's three. Seawolf, Jimmy Carter, hooray, and I just want to say something else. Those things had eight tubes, and they were amazing. In any event, the, the, the Virginia-class boats are, 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 are far superior to, um, to the L.A.-class subs. Uh, Ohio's are being decommissioned. They're, they're getting long in the tooth now. Um, some of them are being repurposed in, since there's no longer 25,000 nuclear warheads on either side. They're being repurposed so they can carry a ton of cruise missiles. That's a that's a smart move, I would say. It's still need to keep some boomers though with the big with the big stuff on top. But nevertheless, there you go. Um, so I just you know the, the, my I think my main gripe with the, with the government is uh, <laughs> at least in terms of defense goes is you can. You can either tax us and spend a lot of money and give us a lot of stuff, or you can take less of our money and get less stuff, but when we pay large amounts of money to get less stuff, that's not good. Um, I don't think the days of the tank are, are finished, but I don't think, I don't certainly don't think the days of the tank are over, but I think the days of armored columns are, are probably over. Uh, the Connecticut, that's what it is. Yep, that's the third Seawolf sub. And the Connecticut is out of commission for years because was it a collision? What happened to the Connecticut? I forget. Something happened just a couple months ago. One of the three most, most potent subs we have, one of the three best subs in the world, is out for years because of some kind of idiotic mishap recently. What happened to the Connecticut? Um... And it's always that eight-second delay here while I wait for my hive mind to uh, to uh, ping us back. Uh, yes, I agree, Lisa Roberts. Half of those agencies in D.C. need to go, starting with the FBI. Couldn't agree more. What happened to the Connecticut? I want to say it was in a... Didn't didn't it hit an underwater? Um, didn't hit an underwater uh, like a subsurface obstruction that wasn't charted in the South China Sea? Wasn't that right? Uh, Tim Morris, USA. You want to be pissed off at the amount of crushed dreams and technology that the government have have. Massacred walk around the USAF Museum in Dayton, Ohio. It's a graveyard of American vision. I had to do that someday. Uh, I was there a month ago or so. Uh, what happened to the Connecticut? Did it? Hit, I think it hit a underwater, yeah, an uncharted underwater, um, or there be a subterranean obstacle or something in the South China Sea. I suppose. Okay, that's better than. That's better than just accidentally hitting another ship because they weren't paying attention. Yeah, Tim says that the it hit some kind of some kind of collision and that it was covered on the surface because they didn't want to give away the inside of the ship. But that's uh, yeah, underwater mountain. Okay, uh, I, that's. I mean, that seems reasonable to me. Um, a sea mount. That's probably the word I was looking for. 
Well, you know, if you're going to you're going to run a humongous boat into something that's not going to give any way, and the boat comes back, I suppose you'd be grateful about that. Um, it's uh, it's repairable. It's just going to take a long time. So um, I'm not too. Oh, somebody asked about missiles, and hey, look at the time. Uh, so I just want to talk about air-to-air -air missiles just for a second here. So I've been, ever since I finished the um, Empire of Terror, I've had a chance to do some DCS, which is a uh, digital combat simulator. It's a it's a flight sim. It's very, very uh, detailed and, and about as accurate as, it, as they can get it in terms of the real world. Um, and... And it's very frustrating in DCS because the uh, the module that I bought, and because I had to make a decision, I, I mean, they're not terribly expensive, forty bucks or something. It wasn't a question of money. I just these things, these jets are so complex. You got to figure out which one you want to do. Yeah, the USS San Francisco, um, AOC points that out. That hit an underwater thing. That killed a, at least one guy. I remember. Um, so uh so in dcs the uh I, I wanted to i wanted to go with the navy because just as a pilot as i say these are extremely accurate simulations and the graphics are getting better and better and better so there's nothing like landing on an aircraft carrier it is a it is it is the toughest thing ever and and i used to pride myself on being able to do it i did it on the marine corps simulator at uh miramar uh, boy, that was seven, eight years ago, eight, ten years ago now, and I was proud of that. But that was just a straight-in approach. When you, if you're going to fly this thing in case one landing, the tolerances are 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 they're just it's so bloody hard. It's not it's not so. I I used to think it was hard getting it on the deck. That's actually getting easy for me now. I've done so many of them. In order to do a case one recovery, and this is just the final stage of a case one recovery, it's got nothing to do with getting out of the Marshall stack or any of it, but a case one recovery in clear weather consists of you approach, uh, you approach the boat from behind, the carrier from behind, you're offset to the right slightly, and you want to be at 800 feet and 350 knots. And you want to be right at 800 feet and right at 350 knots. So, go boom and by. You look down. You can make sure the deck is clear. Depending on how hot you're feeling, give yourself a little more time for the break. Um, a Sierra Hotel break is uh, right over the ship so that they never see the top of the aircraft. But generally speaking, you go forward maybe three-quarters of a mile, maybe a mile. 350 knots, 800 feet, and then just snap roll this thing into an 80-degree turn. Throttle comes all the way back. Some people put out the speed brake. I don't feel like I need it. And then you have to drag the nose of this aircraft around a 180-degree turn because when you enter that 80-degree bank, you got to be at 800 feet. And when you come out of that 80-degree bank, you got to be at 800 feet. And if you are 20 feet off, you start to get dinged for it. It's there's a, a mission in DCS called uh, Bankers uh, Case One Recovery, and it's constantly grading you on every step of this thing. And it's like, okay, um, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, that was a pretty good turn. It's like, 
little high at the uh, at uh, coming out of the break. You know, you were at 820 feet. Should have been at 800 feet. Six out of seven, bastards. So you come out of the come out of the uh, break at 800 feet. Now you're flying downwind essentially to the carrier. Now during that thing, you got to come out of the break at 800 feet, and you have very little time. You have probably 10 seconds or less to get the aircraft gear down, flaps down. You can do some of that in the turn. You got to be at about 700. Uh, 650 feet at the end of that downwind and you've got to re completely reconfigure the airplane to a to a super high angle of attack and then just when you're starting to recover from this you immediately have to roll into another tight turn not as tight 27 30 degree bank and then you've got to be at about 450 to 500 feet as you cross the 90 you got to be at 370 feet when you cross the wake and you got to fly the meatball down on this thing and if you are a little long in the groove if you're a little high ding 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 so the total perfect score is a 75 the best i've ever done was a 53 and i was damn proud of the 53 that was amazing actually and the more you do it surprisingly enough the better it gets it's like okay now i know how to use the rudders to keep me i know where i need to be I need to be 800 feet when i roll out of this thing and now i'm right at 800 feet and then boom so anyway i really enjoy that challenge it's as challenging as it gets plus refueling with a navy jet you got to hit a basket and that's harder than than the air force flying the boom down so I got the uh, F-18 Hornet module, and the F-18 Hornet module is an awesome module. Every single switch does, every single switch works full fidelity. Roger ball, and uh, and that's great. But the Legacy Hornet, the Hornet, the F-18 A through C and D, doesn't exist in the fleet anymore. They've been completely replaced by the Super Hornet. There aren't any flying in the Navy at sea anymore. Legacy Hornets. Everything out there now is is the F-18 E or F, the the Super Hornet, the Superbug, called the Rhino because it's got a the nose is just really distinctly out there. So okay, so now in DCS, I, I don't want to play historical sim. I want to play today. Today uh, in DCS, I have to fly a Legacy Hornet, and I have to fly the most advanced air-to-air -air missile I can use is an AMRAM-C. This is without modifications. So the AMRAM-C, when it was introduced in the 90s, early 90s, was revolutionary, just revolutionary fire-and-forget, extremely accurate missile, unlike the Sparrows and the early Sidewinders. The, the AMRAM was the, the bomb. It was just fantastic. 30-mile effective range, 35 maybe. And so now I'm flying an F-18 that, that is no longer in the inventory, and I'm using AMRAM Cs that are really largely no longer in the inventory because the, the planes and the missiles I'm flying against are state-of-the-art Russian and Chinese aircraft that have superior radars to the stock F-18 to the to the F-18 Hornet, but not superior to the to the Rhino to the Super Hornet. And the entire fleet now I did the re I did the research on this. The entire fleet now has um, AMRAM Deltas. They don't have a 32-mile range. They have a 100-mile range. So I'm going up against Russian and Chinese missiles that are flying at Mach 5 or 6 and launched from 80 miles out. And I'm replying with a missile that has a 30-mile range and maybe a top end of Mach 2 or 3. And I'm tired of it. 
because it doesn't reflect reality. And I keep waiting for a Super Hornet mod, but they're not going to do one. They say that DCS is not allowed to do one because DCS is such a good simulation that the Defense Department doesn't want people using en enemy actors using them to uh, to train up. There, I've heard a couple stories that uh, Ukrainian pilots are, are are using DCS for their primary instruction and getting an awful lot out of it. Um, so you can use mods, but we we sat on our on our lead for too long with that with that Amram. The Delta is a better missile now. The 260 that is um, that's that's back in the game. The the AIM 260, which is going to start entering service later this year, that baby is Mach 5 and 120 nautical mile range. That that puts you right back into the fight again. And the problem with DCS is not only there, there are mods that allow you to fly the, the, the D, but the problem is the radar is so obsolete on the on the F-18C, on the Hornet. The, the Superbug radar is much better. They are coming out with an F-15E Strike Eagle, and that's supposed to have radar that is really amazing. Um... Yeah, Unlimited Hornet Works. Wow, what a great name. Says Robert Gates belongs in jail for killing the F-22. Somebody needs to go to jail for killing the F-22. Every single simulation I've ever seen and, and every single report I've ever heard out of Red Flag, which is the Air Force version of Top Gun, is that the F-22 is honestly in a league by itself. There is nothing that can touch it. Not the felon, not the... J-20, nothing. The, 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 the F-22 Raptor is, is made by Vulcans 400 years in the future and beamed back to us. The F-22 is an unbelievable airplane. Um, the uh, F-35, my understanding was that in order to get the contract for the F-35... I don't remember which party it was, whether it was Lockheed or whether it was the government, but the F-22 had to be discontinued before that F-35 deal would go through. And the F-35 has capabilities that are impressive, and we haven't really had a chance to really fully test those yet. The F-35 doesn't need to get behind a guy. You just look at it and shoot a Niner X or something. Israel has a new missile now. That's a, uh, I've seen footage of this thing. You fire this missile, it goes off the rail, and then it goes forward a... a tenth of a mile and then it just it just stops it just just it just plain stops and reverses it's unbelievable growling sidewinder shot down an f-22 with an f-35 i know he did because i left a comment there i said finally a win for fat amy after all this time um so uh anyway i just don't like the fact that that the that i don't get to fly what the navy's flying now and and look frankly the Super Hornet has been there for a long time. DCS is extremely accurate, but it's not so accurate that there's classified information there, you know? I mean, this stuff is is widely known stuff, and essentially it's always just a, a, a as good a guess as they can make it. But my God, the F-22. That is just... 
they don't see you and and it's not, not not just that you can get close to them without seeing you even when they do know you're there if you get, if you're going up against a powerful uh enemy jet like let's say a uh, su-35 or something something like a super flanker uh and it's got an advanced radar it knows that you're out there and it can sometimes get a lock on you and it'll fire the missile and the missile will start heading your way but once that missile goes to its internal radar to, to finish the deal that internal radar is not strong enough to to see the aircraft you just take the shot and the shot just keeps coming this way and it's like we're out of here it just can't it just can't find you so all I'm saying is uh, I, I don't like I don't like having to fly against um, some of these new mu Russian missiles with R-77 or something. Uh, the odds are uh, are zero percent, Eric. Uh, um, and I don't and the British have a super super air-to-air -air missile, the um, the Meteor. It's got a little scramjet on it, Mach 5, 120 mile nautical range, something like that. Um, but the most amazing, the most amazing missile I've seen was the Israeli missile. That that thing was Python, I think. I think the Python. I I I just just what? Yep. Awesome. Hey, look at the time. I still have things I have to do before I uh, go to bed, baby. Uh, and you know the jet's important, the technology is important, but it's all comes down to the pilot. As uh, as Growling Sidewinder um, points out every day, for those of you not familiar with him, he's got a DCS channel, very popular DCS channel, and he doesn't win every time he's out there, but he wins most of the time he's out there, and it doesn't matter what he's flying or what he's flying against, he usually wins because he's just really, 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 really good. Yeah, that Python. We should just be buying them, you know, be developing our own and buying them. Um, Engines are about to turn aviation on its head. Rotary de rotary detonation engines. You know, Joe, I uh, I like to pride myself on keeping up to date with uh, aviation and military things, but I have never heard of a rotary detonation engine. I know what a rotary engine is. Well, you learn something every day. Ooh. Hang on. Well, and you get to watch me be impressed in real time. Rotor detonation engine is an engine using a form of pressure gain combustion where one or more detonations continuously travel around an annular channel. Computational simulations and experimental results have shown that the RDE has a potential in transport and other applications. If I understand this correctly, it's a jet engine that is using plasma as its engine bell and usually that means you can get to much higher temperatures that would normally melt the, the steel or titanium even so if you can get to higher temperatures you get a lot more thrust how did i never hear of this hold on i'm not going to keep you watching me watch this stuff all day uh, you're gonna watch it's one minute long i'm gonna watch uh, 
I'm not going to queue it up. NASA test fires a 3D printed rotating detonation rocket engine. All right, let's see this. Uh, holy cow! Yeah, you can see it. it's like it's it's almost like somebody cut the tail end off of the jet. I mean, out of, out of the back of the engine, that engine is forming its own nozzle. I guess it's doing electromagnetically. <laughs> a supersonic combustion phenomenon known as a de detonation. See, this is this is this is the kind of thing that makes my makes my day. This is the kind of thing that makes me happy again. Uh, when I see that this is um, this is what uh, American labs are working on, it's like oh, because I keep worrying about these guys. You know, we're we're we're, we're getting behind. We're getting behind. This thing is astonishing. Yeah. All right, rotary detonation. I'm a rotary detonation engine guy from now on. Excellent. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, enough about uh, uh, wonking out on that. That's that's really pretty cool, though. Can we make a deep fake of Booker T. Washington flying an F-22 over Russian soil? I believe I could do that. I believe I could do that. Best use of deep fake technology, if you haven't seen it yet, is Charlie Hopkinson. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings or... Um, Star Wars, he is a um, very, very, very good uh, voice impressionist who uh, about a year ago, I think, maybe right right somewhere around the middle of the Rings of Power catastrophe, Charlie figured out how to do deep fake technology. So now when he does a Ian McClellan Gandalf impression, it's Gandalf. And every episode he does gets better and better. And it is really 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 good he he sits there in a robe as gandalf and just his voice is perfect and and the deep fake is terrific terrific it's just a guy doing it it's like watching gandalf on the couch and and he's got the he's really got the um that's what I'm looking for. He's got the frame down. He's he's got the um he's got the parameters right for that to work. You got to figure out how you're going to do this. Are you going to play Gandalf as if he's really Gandalf? Are you going to have Gandalf out in the field? How are you going to do this? And and what he did was he put Gandalf in a in a made him the dude. You know, he's just sitting around the house in a in his pajama shorts and a robe with his feet up and he's eating. Cheetos, you know, and 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 commenting on the TV show. That's bloody brilliant, really brilliant. Um, yeah, and the Obi Wan roasts the Mandalorian thing. Of all the impressions he does, the one I actually like the most is very recent. He does um, uh, Hayden Christensen. He does him as Anakin Skywalker, and he just manages to capture that sense of being a kind of a whiny idiot. Uh, Air Force built a pulse detonation engine from a car cylinder head, stuck it on a long easy. It's in the Air Force Museum. How did I not see that? Leave people alone, you know, just leave them alone, let them keep some of their money, and then, um, you know, amazing what you can do uh, with that kind of thing. Uh, did I hear that offensive trannies got their channel briefly hit by YouTube? I did hear that. I'm not surprised. She, uh, he was speaking the truth, uh, and 
and it was having an effect, so it had to be shut down. Cowards. And that's why they'll lose, by the way. The reason the Soviet Union had to keep things secret was because they weren't as good as the West, and they knew it. The reason YouTube has to shut out opposing opinions because those opinions are better than their opinions and if they don't shut them out they're going to lose so you should take that as a compliment um all right um i'm i'm going i still always i always have at least an hour to work to do after i uh, finish these babies and it's 9 22 that's three minutes three hours and three minutes of recorded time that's what you get when you get me started on military things and i suppose there are occasionally other things that i talk about but i can't think of anything right now uh, for some reason you like to see a tank with a rocket engine quickly hit into position then go boom what say you i say that's probably not going to work however i have seen um did a right angle show on it or maybe we even did a trifecta on it come to think of it an american built a first time chat gotta sh make sure i get this right because i think it's cool Laser Blast 92, the USA started the Ukraine war. Okay, well, that's interesting. I suppose we we just airdropped in American T-72s with Russian markings and invaded the um, invaded Ukraine from, from Russia without the Russians knowing about it. It's quite a trick. Um, that's really quite a trick. Uh, Anyway, this show is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com who uh, keep the lights on here and who are very, very grateful to at all times. So um, I have been making progress, significant progress on Major, Ma Major, Matt, Major Mace Mattingly. So I'll have some better stuff to show on Monday night, uh, and I'm glad to be finally working on that after talking about it for a long time, not being able to move forward on it. So that's good news. Uh, all right. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Um, assassin of the Grace said American weakness started the war. American weakness didn't start the war. American weakness allowed others to start it. That's a significant difference, but your point is is well made. All right, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you in uh, Monday, I guess, something like that. And until then, um, uh, you know, keep your shirt on, lady. <laughs>